Hello. 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 We got out of Hello. sync there a little, I think. Hello. Hello. Yes, I can hear you. Hello. Edgar. Hello. Edgar. Hello. Are you being an Aegis? Hello. <laughs> so it's been a month, roughly over a month since our last podcast. About that? And our last podcast was the Star Wars special. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was wondering, any, any follow-up for Star Wars? Um, I haven't seen it again since. Okay. Um, I have read like a few articles and stuff on it about how, just how similar it is to uh, A New Hope. I mean, I guess this is a slightly spoilery section then. <laughs> yeah, spoilers, go for it. <laughs> uh, so, so, as we said before, a lot of similarities to the first film, episode four, A New Hope. Mm. Um, I mean, I, I, I think I'm coming down on the fence that I do enjoy it as a film. Okay. I do so, like it. So your opinions are largely unchanged. Yeah, yeah, I do, I, I do enjoy it. Um, and I've been thinking about who my favorite character is and stuff. Okay. It's Kylo. He's your favorite character. Yeah. He was a popular one in the subreddit as well. Um, why do you like him? A couple of reasons. Um, he's a bad guy who isn't a total badass. He's a bad guy with very obvious weaknesses and humanities. Right. Okay. Uh, which I think is interesting. That you know, he's he wants to be Vader. He desperately, desperately wants to be Vader, but he isn't. And, right. And you know, he, he he's got weaknesses. And it's also partially that his weaknesses are kind of what make him evil. That, in a lot of ways, he's a sort of very stereotypical kind of nerd. Um, and it's important to have that kind of... Uh, that Have that kind of thing called out and show that, you know, just because you're a nerd and things go badly for you doesn't make you in the right. <laughs> it's still right. possible to be a bad guy, even if you're a nerd. Mm. Um, uh, I think it kind of, in a way, can call out some of the sort of toxic elements in in how nerd communities act and are constructed oh well that's interesting and he chose evil which i think is very interesting like he it's not it wasn't predestined for him it wasn't something he could never escape he actually chose it which i think is quite interesting as well oh yeah of course yeah that's that's a very valid point yeah because i mean i suppose you could say in some ways that anakin chose evil but i mean it was it it, was the loss of his mother it was yeah. It was a lot of like circumstances that that caused him to to become it. Yeah, he he may have chosen, but like his hands were tied towards the end. Yeah, he was he was he was very much pushed towards it by circumstance. Yeah, and he was manipulated, mm. um, by by Palpatine. But Kylo Ren got everything. Like he was he was totally supported, and he had a chance at redemption, and he rejected it. A good analogy for, like, our generation, then. How so? Yeah, just, like, he strikes me as, like, because of the, the being supported and and all that, he strikes me like the tortured soul kind of character you get a lot from our generation. No? I don't see it. As in, like, as in like he was given everything he needed when he grew up and he was supported and he was loved, yet he lashes out still and goes, seeks out bad things as a kind of response to how lovely his life was beforehand, if you know what I mean? And it's happened... Well, I, think, I think this happens a lot with people in our generation just because of the circumstances generally. Now, this is obviously changed from person to person, but the sort of, sort of, like, economic circumstances we grew up in. Like, we grew up in quite comfortable economic circumstances. 
and yet we seek to rebel and lash out and all of this when really our lives aren't that bad relative to other generations. I would disagree with that. Okay, on what grounds? Okay, so we, like, things were going great for, say, the first 20 years or so of our lives, but our futures are extremely dismal, economically speaking. And it, that has actually all been taken from us by generations that went before. Um, okay, yeah. We are viewed as like freeloaders and needy and demanding. When if you compare the economic situations, things are vastly, vastly orders of magnitude more difficult for us. Okay. Eh, I, yeah, I take that point. Actually. I hadn't considered the future. I had just been mm. considering the past. That's a good point. I like- That's a good point. I, I I don't see how I'll ever be able to afford a house where someone who had my job 30 years ago could have had a house. Yeah, oh, now this is getting off the point of Star Wars. But, uh, no, the, but you're talking about like economically no, 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 and no, stuff. No, no, you, no, you brought up economics, Edgar. No, 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 no. My next point is going to take us away from Star Wars, but I just want to go with it for a second. Does this bother you? I mean, I'm not particularly interested in house ownership myself, but kind of on principle, yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. Because and that and that and that it's kind of turned around that people of our generation are needy, or people of our generation had everything handed to us when that's just not the case. Hmm. Yeah. Like, I, oh, we, you know, oh, you know, we we worked we worked for it in in our day and age. Yeah, but like we have to work way harder to get way less. Yeah, there's, again, there's subtleties here, um, but I, just purely from experience, a lot of people I've met that I, that I think fit um, the paradigm I propose there, that they are kind of needy or had everything handed to them. Like, I had a lot of stuff handed to me. Now, I work hard and stuff and, you know, try and be good and moral and productive. Yeah, totally. <laughs> but, but, like, there's, like, at no point can I say that I struggled in life, you know, or that the family struggled in life. And if, if there was something that I... Like if I needed, if I wanted a guitar or something, you know, th- that could be arranged for me. It might have to be like I might have to sacrifice a Christmas present and, and birthday present to, for for that guitar to show up. But yeah, but but it happens. So I take your point fully. Uh, I I still think there's a nugget of truth that holds mm-hmm. to what I said. And of course, you know, people are different, different situations. I'm sure someone. Uh, of my age who's living in I don't know the Far East has a different sort of thing and someone of my age yeah. living in North America has a different thing you don't know but I no, got that you, you, I, go on after you uh, well I got the I got that impression from Kylo Ren the first time around I was kind of like he, he like there's elements of him that are very Edgar you know like a, kind of the potential to be very spoilt uh, like a bit arrogant prone to temper tantrums when things doesn't get his way and this sort of thing I see a lot in people uh, my age, you know? Right. I think I think also the thing we should acknowledge when talking about this, though, is that we are, have, a, have a very specific viewpoint of being people who are able to go to get a, a third-level a third level education. Yeah, of course, which yeah. Which isn't everyone. And, I mean, we're able to afford to do it in music of all subjects. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Matt, sorry. I, 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 this isn't, again, this isn't Star Wars, but I just, I just want to just put this out to the internet just to... Uh, share my woes. So I am looking at going back to college, right? Yeah. And studying, ideally, the course I've kind of set myself, set my goals towards is physics and astrophysics. Mm-hmm. And so because I've already been to college, the way it works in Ireland is that you get one free college session. 
And if you want to go back, like do a postgrad or do another undergraduate, you have to pay full whack. Mm-hmm. So I've been looking at the finances and like, oh man, it's just, it's so incredibly mind blowing how much money education costs and how lucky we are that we can have one bout of studies at like essentially free. Mm-hmm. Like it, it's just crazy, and I didn't. This is like again speaking to the kind of the spoiled sort of generation of ours. And that that is something I didn't even acknowledge. I was just kind of like, yeah, everyone goes to college. Yeah, like it costs a registration fee every year, but it's no big deal. It's standard. And then when you have to do it out of your own means, uh, you realize, my God, it's actually such an exceptional thing to be able to go to college without ever mm-hmm. having to worry about it. You know? Yeah, it's certainly it's it's that's one big element taken care of. All right. Yeah, definitely. Anyhow, sorry, back to Star Wars. <laughs> Digressions already. Uh, so yeah, so we liked we like Kylo Ren. Yeah. Anything? Uh, did you read any interesting critiques? No, mostly stuff just comparing it to to uh, the first the first film. Um, I haven't come across any of the sort of critical reception stuff I was talking about in the last episode mm. yet. Okay. The last episode of the podcast. Yeah. So I watched it uh, again. Hmm. I brought the captain along uh, to watch it and it, it was interesting the second time around because I wasn't watching it with such uh, a critical eye. It, it was a lot easier to swallow all the uh, similarities. Right. Yeah, like there was a point halfway through the film I was like, oh, but the first time I watched this I was getting mildly annoyed because I'd already seen like a hundred references or whatever to um, to A New Hope. But the second time around it was very strange. It didn't happen and I felt myself just sitting back relaxing and watching a film. Which I did not expect at all. And I think my point still holds. If you haven't seen A New Hope, this Star Wars is unreal. Mm-hmm. Like, it's it's incredible. Like uh, And there's it's so much better than A New Hope. And everything about this movie is awesome. But I've been really trying to, like, nail down my position. And I just, I can't, I can't, like, reconcile the fact that, like, the narrative isn't something new. And hasn't really added a whole lot to it and that that's a huge like minus point like there's so many plus points but that's one one point that you gotta get right like story it's at the heart of every sort of communicative medium you know hmm um I, I got a BB-8 toy excellent yes hold on let me wait one second let me get him for you wait I can't we can we can give him a play for the listeners bill uh <laughs> okay okay pick a mode number one or number two two well done. Do you hear him? Oh, I do. That's yeah. excellent. He's class. I, it was really funny. I went into the Disney store in Dublin. Yeah. And uh, give me a second here. Sorry. I just need to put him back in his designated position. So I was thinking for the uh, for the outro cards uh, on my videos, I was thinking about setting up a little table and having various little like toys on the table. <laughs> so, so like the wobble heads uh, and the BB-8 and a Rubik's Cube and maybe some of my favourite world building books just to like make a little kind of prop thing and this hit me as I walked by the Disney store and I was like oh let's buy a BB-8 so I went in and I, I gotta say this I, I realised no one from the Disney store is watching but they're just the friendliest people I was blown away at the level of customer care and attention and how nice they are like, it was incredible. There was, like, uh, some guys were asking about um, lightsaber combat. Mm-hmm. Because they were selling lightsabers. And one of the, like, one of the clerks was clearly, like, a massive nerd. And he, like, he, like, goes out of his way to discuss lightsaber combat with them. And they have an engaging little conversation and they discuss the various different techniques. And, like, this, 
this was incredible. And then I dealt with the same guy at the counter and he asked me about, because I told him I was buying props for my YouTube channel. And like, he gave me a high five for doing YouTube and he was like, that's awesome, man. And then we had a little discussion and it was, it was incredibly friendly. I like, I could not believe how lovely that is. The only thing that stopped me from ever going back to Disney stores, the outrageous prices. But, <laughs> but other than that, it's like, it was, it was great. So I got my little BB-8. He's the first toy in my little prop collection. So uh, you should be seeing him on video soon. Will it be a, a thing where there's going to be a, a slow rotation of them and you're going to ha- have new ones? Or will it be a like a growing collection that's just going to be the same things and then you add more to it? I think in a year or two time, I might just be swamped in toys. Yeah. I think I'm, that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> I don't know. I will see how it goes. Uh, I definitely go- I'm definitely thinking I'm going to have like a core set. Like something from my favorite thing. So there will be a Star Wars thing. There will be a Star Trek thing. Um, mm-hmm. If I can get something Skyrim related, that will probably always be there. Maybe a Minecraft thing, because there I really like those things. Um, and then outside of that, sure, whatever happens. So yeah, so that's that. Now, one last thing on Star Wars, Bill, if it's okay with you. Sure. I want to get into reading and experiencing the expanded universe stuff. Yeah. Right. And I was just wondering, I realize that probably you're not the best person to ask, but you know, kind of you're the only one here. <laughs> so I was wondering, uh, how does one get into EU? Like what is the extended universe or the expanded universe? So are you asking like what is still canon or do you like mind like the stuff that isn't canon anymore? Is that right. still of interest to you? Yeah. So for the listeners, this bit I do know is that because of the new film, it has uh, retconned an awful lot of what was already canon. Isn't that the thing? And they have to throw out a whole load of things? Yeah. Yeah, that doesn't bother me at all, really. I suppose, what is canon? Like, what makes a thing canon? Does it have to be officially licensed by Lucasfilm? Well, all of the old stuff had been canon, and that's all now in a new continuity called Star Wars Legends, I think. Oh, Um, all the... So all of the novels and stuff. Right, okay. All of the Uh, novels set after um, Return of the Jedi are no longer canon, and they're, they're in... The expanded universe, the the Star Wars Legends continuity. Some stuff that was earlier may also be in Legends. I'm not sure. I think the cartoons are still canon, uh, and apparently they're brilliant. Oh right, really? The two, the two, yeah. There's two series of Clone Wars cartoons. Like one was um, about ten years ago, maybe a bit more, okay. and it was done in kind of the style of Samurai Jack. I think it was the same animation studio. Okay. You like Samurai Jack, don't you? I know of them. I haven't really watched stuff. Oh, okay. And then there's another one more recent, which was 3D animated, which is also apparently really good. Okay. And it's just like, it takes place during the Clone Wars, and and is Anakin and Mace Windu and uh, Obi-Wan Kenobi being badasses. <laughs> and and what made what made the novels canon before they became uncanon? Like, what, what makes a thing canon? If I write a book, does that mean it will be canon? No. No, so what makes it canon? Does it have to be licensed by Lucasfilm? I, I guess so, yeah. Okay. All right, okay. So so essentially, if you want to get into, like, if you want to know the canon stuff, you just need to look up everything that's been produced officially by, like, Lucasfilm or Disney and watch or read or listen to it. I suppose, yeah. Okay. Or you could just, like, read it all on Wikipedia. Oh, you could do that, yeah. But uh, yeah. it's nice to read. I'm quite fond of, I, I, you know, I'm not a... This is weird. I'm not a big Star Wars fan, really, but I, I do quite enjoy reading Wikipedia. 
Yeah, I would still like to read like a book. Mm. Um, it's like it's nice, yes, to like get a brief synopsis of you know what's going on in the universe, but you know it's nice to have a bit of narrative as well. Because yeah, this is the thing I might get into. I might start reading reading some Star Wars books because it would be interesting. Because the lightsaber combat the last time. Yeah. Yeah, that that because I had to go. The people left links about the various different types of lightsaber combat and the whole thing where you said about turning the blade on and off. Um, yeah. That got me reading an awful lot, and I realized some of it's just amazing. I was like, I gotta, I gotta get into this. So this is the thing. New Year's resolution. The thing I'm gonna do. I'm gonna read some Star Wars. Cool. All right. I didn't make any New Year's resolutions, but I, I think I might learn to juggle. Oh, I can juggle. You can juggle. I can. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Why? Why do you want to learn how to juggle? As a compositional impulse, I'm interested in it from a rhythmic point of view. Oh, oh, here as a compositional thing as well. Uh, there's juggler notation, which is kind of cool. Is there? Yeah, there's notations hmm. to the various different like cycles, I suppose, for throwing the balls around the air. So there's an actual like written script to it. That's very interesting. Yeah, I think that's something you'd be interested in. I've never, I've hmm. never seen it before because I just, I just, I learned kind of like naturally a guy a guy just showed me so so yeah the uh can i give you a word of advice for juggling yes can you juggle anything at all i'm i kind of about 10 years ago um i did it on uh, as part of like a summer course thing and it was the making a point about learning skills and i was like oh that's cool and i was okay um i was like just about to be able to do three comfortably but then okay. I just never practiced when I came home. So. Okay, all right. Um, my two tips uh, I was given by a uh, juggling friend of mine was one: when you're learning, make no attempt to catch the balls. Okay. All right. So like you're throwing the balls around, and what you want to do is you want to just let them fall on the floor, and they should fall in a very distinct pattern. Right. Right. So you're you're learning like the pattern of how the balls are going. So you're not you're not like wasting brain energy trying to grab all these things in the air. You just throw them around, let them drop and go. Was there three on one side and two on the other side? Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That's yeah. one. And then the other thing I found hugely useful was to practice in front of a wall. Yes, I've heard that. Yeah, because I, I don't know what it is. Um, tell if there's any jugglers listening, please tell me. But there's something about juggling that it, the balls keep going forward. It's very strange. Mm. And even if you, like, purposely decide to, like, throw a little bit backwards, they all just seem to have this momentum forward. So those two things help me out an awful lot. And I can do, I can do five at a, at a stretch. Oh, no way. Yeah, at a, at a big stretch. And they need to be particularly small balls. Otherwise, I'm not mm. going to be able to do it. And I only know two patterns of, of juggling. There's the conventional one and there's, like, this overhand one. Um, mm. So I'm no, by no means a good jugger, but I understand the mechanisms. Cool. Will you let? Will you have some uh, juggling follow up for the next show? Will you let us know Bill's progress in in juggling land? I don't know if I will or not. That <laughs> sounded very political. <laughs> very kind of like don't answer the question. <laughs> uh, but I wish you well on your on your juggling adventure. Thank you. All right. So you mentioned uh, like a compositional impulse there. Mm-hmm. Um, you've been doing some writing recently. I have. Yes. I uh, have. Do you want to talk about this? In the last episode of the podcast, uh, Jafiki Nandiwan was asking us what it would be like for a culture to have tetratonic or pentatonic music. Mm. So we got to, we spoke uh, at length about um, music world building. Yes. And I said that I don't really world build music because I would get too wrapped up in it. Mm. But I have written a guide 
um, a few pages on how you can approach music world building. I'm going to write at least two articles, maybe a third. The oh. first one is on my WordPress. A links, links in the show notes. Cheers. And it's about how to build musical cultures. So it's not dealing with the music itself so much as the, the society it's in and how to consider different aspects of what constitutes the, the, the kind of the cultural musicology um, mm. and how that's, how that's made up and how a writer or a world builder can think about those things in a way that maybe will break them free of just recreating things we already know. Yeah, definitely. This is this is the the, the piece that you posted on my various platforms, yeah? I did, yes. Yeah. I put it up in the subreddit and I've posted it to Artifexian and Now, th- this will be this will be in the show notes, guys. And if if you've seen it on Artifexian, great, but if you haven't, I I'd advise you to go check it out. Uh I'm sure Bill is going to find this very embarrassing, right? But I found it I found this piece brilliant. Right? It was so good. There's a really uh, at least in my eyes, it was a really unique way of doing it because it was like there's very instructional text and then interspersed throughout the instructional text was these like um, passages of the instructions in context. And it made for great reading. Like if, if it was, just, I could not believe how well that was written and I really am a big fan of that writing style, Bill, and I might even try and steal it. Um <laughs> <laughs> Work but away. I couldn't. I, I joke, but I, I couldn't believe how well that worked. Though, like you had a small instructional piece, talked about various things, and then you have it an application of it, and then back to the instruction and back to the application, and it was a very dynamic way of writing. I really enjoyed it. Cheers, dude. So I look forward to number two and number three. What's number two and three going to be about? So um, the next one, my plan is to write a bit about music theory, uh, but oh, from a okay. sort of physical, like the physics point of view why harmony exists um the 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 biological and physical um bases for harmony and how notes are ch- like why we choose certain frequencies okay um maybe a little bit and um, about instruments about kind of organology and that kind of thing how how instruments are made how, like what's going on and then maybe some of the cultural things around creating instruments. Like how pretty much every culture ever has had bagpipes. Oh, have they? I mean, yeah. If you can, like, get access to a pipe and some kind of bladder, then yeah. you're, you're probably, like, there's somewhere at least nearby that has bagpipes all over. Actually, I'm not, not so sure about Sub-Saharan Africa. I can't think of any, like, um, uh, off the top of my head. There may well be. I just can't, can't think of any examples from, like, uh, Bantu groups or anything. And I don't know if the if the San have them, but all over North America and Europe and Asia, everyone's had bagpipes. That strikes me as being one step too complicated. I would have always assumed that it was just everyone has flutes. Yeah, no, well, that's, that's yeah, everyone does have flutes. Oh, right, okay. <laughs> flutes are probably the first. Flutes and percussion are probably the first. Okay. Oh, cool. Oh, that's interesting. And so so that's so the physics of, of music then... For that one, and what potentially what what's the third one about, or do you want to keep it secret? I don't. Yeah, I don't want to say too much about it because I don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you realise though, Bill, if you if you say it online, like announce it, that means it it places the like like burden upon you to make the thing, and that can often be very healthy. 
that's that's true but you know the burden is there anyway because i have already mentioned the the existence of it so at least okay. this way i've got wiggle room with what it's about <laughs> That's a good point. So we will keep you apprised, listeners, uh, as to when these articles go up. I'm sure you'll see them on various artifacting platforms, and of course, Bill's uh, WordPress. And I'll, I'll link, I'll link profusely to these things because I think I really do think they're great. Thanks, man. Um, they were. I had. Oh, now I'll talk about this more in depth in the green room. But I had a very existential crisis month last month. Oh, really? Yeah, just uh, uh, things weren't working out in terms of being creative and, and writing and things like that. And a few things happened that, like, compounded these things. And one of them was reading your article. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's uh, totally fine. No, no, it's uh, you, you know this happens sometimes. So I had spoken to a person who was very, very interesting and intellectual and that made me feel like oh god look at the crap i produce this is ridiculous compared to how these people speak and things like that and then like literally 24 hours later bill drops an article on my doorstep which is beautifully crafted and i'm there struggling with my like kind of like ya style a dialogue or ya style narrative on my channels and it was just it was (laughs) it was hilarious but yeah anyhow so uh yeah links in the show notes to all that and i really do strongly encourage people to check it out Cool. Uh, is there anything fun in the emails there, Bill? Um, there's a few things, but uh, I think the most important one that I I want to bring up, we can come back to the others another time, is an email from uh, Johannes Stormvika. Okay. Uh, and he just wants to say that he agrees with Bill about the bear flag. <laughs> it's amazing and the coolest flag ever. Uh, this is the Zelesnogorsk flag that Edgar and I had a, a heated disagreement on last episode. Oh, man, I don't know what it is. I, I think, I think... It's, an, it's atomic bear science. I it, is atom- it is. It's atomic bear science. I think I just, I think I just don't know what, what's good. Because, I mean, like, I, I got heavily criticised for Star Wars, <laughs> for not liking Star Wars, heavily criticised for not liking Die Hard, uh, heavily criticised for not liking The Fly. Uh, and, and now, apparently, the, uh, the atomic bear science flag is uh, good vexillology. I just think I have don't have taste, Bill. It's possible. It is possible. It's possible. And with the more people that write in and go, geez, Edgar, you're totally wrong, the more I'm beginning to believe that, in fact, I could just be tasteless. <laughs> I mean, the signs are all there. They are. It's worrying. It's worrying. The first step to getting better is admitting you have a problem. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, well, hey, listen, while we're speaking flag, should we do flag corner? Yeah, sure. Okay. So we got a lot of emails uh, about the New Zealand flag referendum. Mm -hmm. I I don't want to talk about the New Zealand flag referendum particularly because it's being discussed at length on other podcasts. Right. Uh, So people were asking uh, my opinion on this, well, our opinion on this. TLDR, I think that it's a really interesting voting system they're employing. It's a very interesting time for vexillology. I think that the flag they chose to go up against their state flag is rubbish and they just overthought the thing and it should have just had a silver fern on a black background. So that's my summation of the entire New Zealand flag referendum. Have you got any opinions on it? Um, I'm not particularly fond of any of the designs. Of any of the designs at all? Any of them? Of any of the final five. Okay, all right. Again, so are you... Five Cylons. Um... Wait, hold on. You broke up there. Did you say of any of the final five Cylons? Maybe. <laughs> so are you with me on on the fact that it should have just been a silver fern on a black background? Yeah. 
Yeah, okay, yeah, I think they've massively overthought it. Anyhow, I don't want to get into that because, again, it's been discussed at length on other podcasts and we really want to try and have a different take on things here on the Artifacts Team podcast. <laughs> so, what I decided to do was go through and find what I believe to be the worst contenders for the New Zealand flag. Mm-hmm. So they, because they opened up the design process. To- I'll probably love all of these now. <laughs> I'm sure you will. Uh, they opened up the design process to everyone, like anyone yeah. and everyone. So obviously you had great designs come forward. And obviously you would also have terrible designs. And all the designs are still listed on the official website of the New Zealand government. Excellent. All of them. Even the crappy ones, right? So I was pouring over this last night and I think I've come up with a top five. Okay. Alright. Uh, so let's go. Do you want to go through these? Sure. Okay, so don't click on anything yet, Bill. Alright. Okay, I've, I've opened them all in tabs. I haven't looked at the tabs yet. Alright, okay. Don't, don't look at them yet. I'm going to read you the description okay. and then I want you to open up the tab. Okay. Okay, because very often the description and the flag don't match up. <laughs> Okay. okay, so first one is uh, on your tab there, you should see land of the long white sheep cloud. Yeah. Okay, right. So let me read, let me read the, uh, the description. The long white cloud represents our country's identity, what makes New Zealand special. The sheep's legs symbolize our endless pursuit to grow as a nation, as we refine New Zealand into a place that we and the next generations can be proud to be part of. Okay. Open up the flag there. Jesus God. <laughs> Isn't it awful? That, okay. well, that's a joke, though. No, no, obviously, you know, these are obviously what people drop in as jokes. Like, I'm not going to choose serious ones. These are, like, how insane people are going to get. For, for the listeners, myself and Bill will probably take turns at describing this. I'll start off. What we have is we have a blue background and a Southern Cross, exactly the same way as the New Zealand flag is at the moment. But replacing the Union Jack and strung across uh, the, from the left-hand side going into the right is an elongated sheep cloud thing, right? And it has little bitty legs. And it's way longer than a sheep should be. And this is apparently used to, used to show the growth and development of the nation, which I think is hilarious. Great flag. Um, and I also like that the one end of the sheep is actually, I, I, I suppose it would be the back end, ju- judging by the, the legs, but it's not really very clear. Um, <laughs> that it actually goes off the edge of the flag. So yeah. You, like, it's, it's like the, the sheep has kind of wandered onto the flag <laughs> by accident. Yeah, although the front, the front legs, like the legs on the right-hand side, they, yeah. they look to be front legs because of their orientation, but there's no head there. There's no head, no. It's no. Because it's a, it's a sheep cloud, it's not a sheep. It's a sheep oh, yeah, sorry, obviously, yeah, the, the, the famous sheep cloud. <laughs> um, I'm pretty sure Land of the Long White Cloud is a name for New Zealand. Oh, is it? Yeah, like, so it's it, this, like, th- there's, it's obvious, it's obvious this is, like, silly nonsense, but it's silly nonsense with a basis in yeah. something. Yeah, so, um... That's one case of the the cloud being a thing, and then also I'm sure we're all aware that uh, New Zealand is uh, sort of stereotyped as having a lot of sheep, uh, yes. and there's another another thing, another little dig in there. I really, I I bet you this was I don't know where the Bay of Plenty is, because this comes from a person from the Bay of Plenty. But like I, I can almost assure people that it's probably going to be someone in Australia messing with the New Zealanders. 
No, it's in it's in the North Island. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah, it's, it's the I think it's the north. Looks like it's the north tip of the North Island. Okay, because not I, the north tip, but a, an area in the north. Okay, because I, I think that a lot of New Ze- uh, Australians really like had a great time. There's a lot of banter going on between the two countries about this, which I thought was like, re- and it was really like good spirited banter, you know. Mm-hmm. It was very good. So that that is number five. These aren't really in any particular order. I must I must stress. I, okay, I'm going to say I. This is obviously a very, very silly flag. It's, but it's, it's really, it's quite, quite a clever joke. Yeah, yeah, no. Uh, th- it is th- quite a clever joke. These flags are a selection of what I thought was hilarious, uh, witty, and just terrible. Mm-hmm. Okay, so they're not all just going to be like silly little jokes. There were some that were like there was one that was a brown background, and someone had in paint drawn a cat scraping a litter tray. And it was called, it was called, it was called like a deranged cat rakes back garden or something like that. And it had no relevance to anything. It was was hilarious. Okay, so the next one, uh, you're actually going to need to fill me in on this because I think the next one is kind of birthed of the internet. And I'm not actually sure, I'm not actually sure I get the joke. I just think the design is hilarious. So the next okay. one, the next one you should see on your tab is Nyan Kiwi. <laughs> okay, now uh, I'm gonna have you. Did you open it? Yeah. Are you? You're meant to. You're meant to read the thing first. That's okay. Um, oh, I'm sorry. That's sorry. that's right. So, can you explain? Uh, do you want to take the describe the flag there first? This flag combines the Southern Cross and color scheme of our existing flag with the rainbow design of the popular Nyan Cat meme. The design uses the Nyan Kiwi. The kiwi's colour represents our mixed-race society, and its trail represents the colourful variety of cultures present in New Zealand society. That's a badly written blurb. <laughs> the Nyan theme music could also be used as a fresh and simpler national anthem. Wow. It's not hilarious. Wow. So, so I don't know what the Nyan theme is. I, know, I have no idea what this is. But I know the... Oh, ra- you, don't know, you don't know Nyan Cat? No, but I know the rainbow thing is something of the internet. I always thought the rainbow thing was unicorns. So, so Nyan Cat is, uh, I think it was like a, originally a like a flash animation loop of, uh, I guess it's it's a cat whose body is like a pop tart or something. What? I'm trying. I'm trying to remember. Yeah, I'm trying to remember. Hold on. Let me just let me just get an image up here, and it like is flying through space, leaving a rainbow trail, and there's kind of like this sort of chirpy music in the background, and it's it's really rather entertaining. Yeah, that looks that looks a lot like a like a pop tart to me. Okay, alright. Yeah, and it's just it's like a cute little cat, and there's like sort of stars in the background. Is this of the old internet? Uh, like no, bef- the last five years, I'd say. Okay, alright. Somehow that completely passed me by. Anyhow, so to describe the flag, Bill, because you just read the blurb. What so, what does this flag look like? So it has the same deep blue background as the existing Kiwi flag. There's uh, the four red stars of the white border forming the Southern Cross on the right-hand side. Again, similar to the, the current flag. Uh, and then we have a rainbow trail uh, coming on from the left-hand side of the flag, leading to a really poorly drawn kiwi, as in the little bird, the little kiwi bird. So I, I showed this to my brother last night to give, yeah. him a, to give him a rundown of the flags, just to check... Did I pick any obnoxiously boring ones? And he thought this was a terrible flag. He didn't He didn't understand and didn't get the joke. And then it was only after I explained to him that the brown blob in the centre is meant to be a kiwi that he, like, like burst himself. 
Yeah, it's it's really it's really kind of doesn't look like anything. <laughs> it's really hard to like pick out. And when I saw Nyan Kiwi, I thought it might be like Nyan Cat, and then like the two islands. Oh, it doesn't look at all like the two islands. Oh, oh, it's a kiwi. It's the bird. It's the little, <laughs> the little flightless dude. It's just I just I love like you can never underestimate how much the internet will just have the crack. <laughs> just, just I love it. So that's number that's number four, right? Number three. Okay. Yep. Ready? Coming at you, number three. So this is called Kiwi Flag. Okay? Very simple, mm-hmm. right? And the little blurb is, the New Zealand flag does not need to change. But if it must, then a stylized Kiwi, like the arms forces have on their vehicles overseas, should be the only change. The Union flag is a part of our history and should remain as part of a flag. It is the duty of all New Zealanders to learn to recognise their own flag amongst all others. So there's a clear nod to the fact that the Australian flag and the New Zealand flag are identical. And so anyhow, open it up there. (laughs) I love it so much. That is very silly. (laughs) But apparently that's the, uh, like according to this guy... That's the, the symbol for the New Zealand Armed Forces. Wow. Which is hilarious. I really hope it is. I didn't check it up. We like, you know, didn't want to dedicate the time to it. But that's hilarious. Like, uh, So for, for the listeners, this is the exact same flag as New Zealand currently has. Big Union Jack in the top left-hand corner. Red Southern Cross on the right. Uh, but underneath the Union Jack on the left-hand corner, there is a Kiwi who who looks to have some sort of, like, spear. Yeah, he's a sort of spear, and he's lunging forward with a very intense look, very aggressive, intense look. But it's very funny because he's very pudgy, and it's just this is brilliant. You have to check it out. Links to all of these are in the show notes. That's, that is, yeah, it's, it's kind of... Kind of cute, angry. Yeah, he's very cute, angry. Like he, like he's full of rage and fury, but he's never gonna be able to do it because of his diminutive stature. Hilarious. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. Hold on a second. Well, breaking news just in. Um, it looks like it might be a Tayaha, the spear. Now, okay. All right. Is this a, an indigenous sort of thing? Yeah, it's a, it's a Maori, it's a Maori weapon. I, I, I literally, I just like googled Maori spear. I got the Wikipedia article, and I'm looking at uh, Google Images. Well, hang on now. Um, hold on, hold on. No, Bill, 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 Bill. We really what? should be figuring out whether or not this is the exact f- symbol on the New Zealand Armed Forces. As far as I can tell, it isn't. It isn't? No. Because oh. that's, that's, that was part of the appeal of this flag, because I was like, you can't seriously have soldiers going around the place with, like, uh, <laughs> chubby kiwi, chubby angry kiwi on their shoulders. Like, it just wouldn't work. Yeah. Like, this is not intimidating at all. So we have um, we have that guy. Okay, so that's design number number. Th- was that three or two? Three. That or two? was three. That was three. Okay, right. Number two. Two more to go. All right. So this one should be called. If you if you're looking in the tab, it should be called "Fire the Laser!" Exclamation mark. Laser spelled L A Z A R. Yeah, the way it should be spelled. <laughs> so. <clears throat> The laser beam projects a powerful image of New Zealand. I believe my design is so powerful, it does not need to be discussed. (laughs) That's it? That's all he wrote. So open it up there. (laughs) (laughs) That is fabulous. That is absolutely fabulous. So do you want to to describe it there? Because I took the last two and I need to just recover. 
so this is the first one we've had, which deviates significantly from the current flag. It's a black background. Mm. And in the top left corner is a silver fern. Yes, good des- not, good design not, points, you know? Uh, good design points. Yeah, lovely design. Not yeah. uh, not dissimilar from the kind of sports logos, like the, the rugby logo. Yeah, stuff. yeah. Quality, um, quality, some might say. In the bottom right, we have a kiwi. And, and, a, um, and a better drawn kiwi than the couple of the ones. Significantly better, Significantly, yeah, significantly better. better. And this kiwi appears to be firing a green laser from its eyes. Um, which is sort of hitting the hitting the left hand side of the flag underneath the fern, which which is brilliant and and it, it's, it yeah and it follows it's, it's like bright green it's like <laughs> it's it's really bright green and it follows the rule that if one adds lasers to something it automatically gets better. Yeah, yeah. So this is this is this this is an inspired design. Someone has taken three key points. Of New Zealand culture, the black, the very, very iconic color, the fern, the kiwi, and then it's taught how can we make this better, and they've added the laser, and it is it is an utter victory all around, and then, frankly, it's a bit of a disaster that it hadn't made it through the design selection process. I I can see no reason why this wasn't included on the oh, long list. Actually, <laughs> it just dawned on me. You know what they could have done, actually. What? They could have had the kiwi fire the laser upwards. Mm-hmm. Uh, like up at the top right hand corner and then immediately I'd be thinking that it's firing the laser towards Australia which would be hilarious given the two of them are always at each other's throats again in a very jovial way that's interesting yeah that would have been really cool I was kind of wondering would it, would it be that it was, just as you started to say that I was wondering was that where it's aiming but um, yeah so it would have to be much more kind of northerly if we use a, a typical a typical, typical projection, yeah. Typical uh, orientation, yeah. Yeah, that would have been... I think this is the only reason why this flag did not make a true bill. They, did, they didn't want to antagonise their larger neighbour. No, no, it's that they weren't antagonising their larger neighbour. They were like, it's too soft. You've What you've done there is you've included a laser, right? You've shown a symbol of the power of our country, but you're just directing it down towards the Antarctic. No good, no good. You have to point the laser at Australia and just be like, there you go, lads. That's our new flag. Boom, yeah. done. And finally, number one. Thank you, listeners, for sitting through this and indulging me. <laughs> okay, so this one uh, should be called Te Pepe. Okay. Oh now, uh, I don't know what that is, and I'm probably. I, I think I, I think I may have seen this already. Oh, okay. Do you, do you, do you want to just try and uh, describe it to me? Because if you're right, great. If you're wrong, then we have another hilarious flag to talk about. Is this is this the flag? It's like. It's got a, a weird kind of pastel background and a kiwi, but with Pepe face. No, yeah. What is a Pepe face? I don't. Apparently, I don't know the internet. I've no taste, and I don't know the internet. What is this? It's a meme. It's a meme. Okay. All right. There you go. Um. Uh. Squinty eyes, kind of a like a really sad look. Yeah. It's it's <sighs> it's usually a frog. It's oh, I see it. Yeah. Like a sad looking frog. It's very. Oh, I see what they've done there, and they've like photoshopped or MS painted a, a beak onto the thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, yes, this is the flag. So, for listeners, can I click into it now? Then, yes, of course. Look at it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so bad. <laughs> so, uh, and there's a few points that I find like, like subtle points that I find to be like hilarious about this. Okay, so for the listeners, we're looking at a sort of pastel blue, bluish background. 
Yeah, kind of very pale blue-gray. Yeah, very pale blue-gray. That color background. And then what we have is we have a, a, a like a geometric ellipse, okay, that forms the body of a kiwi. And the kiwi... I got I actually I, there's so much here I don't even know where to start. The kiwi is comprised of this geometric ellipse with a pepe face on the front, where the frog's lips have been elongated into a beak, and the frog's feet have been coloured in brown to make them look like kiwi feet, but they're still clearly frog's feet. Feet. Mm, the, the the frog the, the feet isn't isn't a part of the pepe thing. I think oh, they're okay. just badly drawn in. They're just badly drawn in feet, right? And then on the body, the body is uh, the, sorry, the face is green. Uh, the lips and feet are brown, and the body is blue, and then in the body is the current New Zealand flag. Yeah. Right? Now, all of that is not what makes it hilarious for me. Like, obviously, it's very funny, right? But the, the thing that I just find great, I find, like, people go to, like, extreme lengths to, like, mock and ridicule and be funny and things like that. Like, someone clearly is taking the time to put this face there and do all that. But, like, they always neglect something very minor. And what they've neglected to do is fully merge the flag, the the New Zealand flag, with the blue of the body. I knew that so was going to be it, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so you still have you still have the outline of the flag. So it looks, oh, it's just so terrible. That's, I, I think that's only deliberate. You think it's deliberate? Yeah, yeah. I'm, I, like, I'm looking at it now, and like I suppose you could argue it's a drop shadow because it does really only affect the the bottom and the right hand side, so it could be a drop shadow. I don't know, man. I don't know. I think this. <laughs> I I really don't know. Anyhow, the description. The, the white, the white uh, <laughs> of Saint Andrew Saltair in the Union Jack is kind of speckled with bits of blue. It's really weird. Yeah, it's really strange. I I don't know how why they did that. I don't I don't understand that. <laughs> oh, it's just awful. Uh, and the, the, uh, maybe the, it's like the, deliberate. J- maybe the whole thing is just because it's like deliberate JPEG artifacts, just to to kind of rough it up a little. Maybe, maybe, yeah, it could well be, could well be. But it's funny because the rest of it isn't JPEG art. Isn't done with JPEG artifacts. Mm. It's very strange. Uh, you know what it could be as well. It could just be that. Um, they just download a really poor quality flag of New Zealand. Possibly, yeah. Uh, you know what I like? Uh, what do you like? I like that the the body is just someone got like the circle tool. The body of the kiwi is just done with a circle tool. Yeah, yeah. It's like it's, it's not like it's, there's no like thought or shape or anything put into it. It's just okay. Draw an egg. Put Pepe on it. Done. It's like it's like perfectly. That's what I say about geometric. It's like the only thing in here that is like geometric, like proper geometric, and it's so jarring. Like if you really think about it and look at it, none of the three elements of the body combine. So like the head doesn't really look attached to the body, and the body doesn't really look attached to the legs. No, no, it's just it's just hilarious. <laughs> anyway, so the description is uh, that feel. When our eyes gaze upon the flightless and majestic rare kiwi bird is a classic icon of New Zealand's deep relationship with our ancestors, their spirit, land, and culture. And then it says, I can't, I can't pronounce this, Te Pepe Tamariki Te Papa Eoterao, something like that. That last word is the land of the long white cloud. Okay, so I was going to assume that it was something to do with the like national anthem or national declaration or something. And they've clearly just inserted yeah. the word Pepe there. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to Google this, see if I can find what, what they're... And I, I took out the words Pepe and Papa, and I just still got Te Pepe. <laughs> 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 oh, 
Yeah, he had, this flag has its own Twitter account. Really? Yeah, yeah it's t- it's it's got a huge following to it. Apparently, I did a quick bit of research last night. Apparently, this thing has really become. It's captured the hearts and minds of people all across the globe. Yeah, I'm 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 very fond of this Pepe flag. Are you? Is that would that be the best one so far? Um, it's it's the most kind of determinedly ridiculous. But <laughs> my. my my favourite would have been the laser flag had they just aimed their uh, weapons of mass destruction in the correct mm. corner. My favourite really is that Kiwi flag um, with yeah. the armed forces Kiwi just because it's like the design, the little blurb is is like, is so serious. And like the Kiwi is like, it, it seems to have like roots in something serious, but it's just not serious and it's really cute and it has a little spear and it's a little bit angry. Oh, it's just great. So good. So I, I think overall my favorite is probably the long white sheep cloud because I, I think I think it's it's quite a quite a witty little joke, <laughs> and the fact that the back end of the sheep cloud is off frame I think it just that adds just a, a touch of ridiculousness to it. <laughs> yeah, it's great. Anyhow, there you have it. I think that's I think that's a flag corner. That's that's us. I think. I think that's us done. Okay, so the main topic for today is from an email sent to us by Sami Mubarak Sadakirsky. Okay. Who was writing, uh, building a world that's set in a Neolithic or a Chalcolithic uh, time period. So that's the late Stone Age, the Neolithic. Uh, the Chalcolithic is the Copper Age. Yes. And they're looking for any resources on these periods and the people, or do we know anything about it? Okay. Acknowledging that it's very far away from building stars and planets <laughs> exactly so it's very out of my comfort zone so what i did was i talked to a an archaeologist friend of mine okay uh so i i, I basically interviewed interviewed her for about three hours we had a three hour long talk um wow. uh, yeah about this stuff now we decided the best way to proceed was to have a discussion based on her area of expertise okay because that's what she can talk about uh, the most readily. Now, her area mm-hmm. of expertise is not the Neolithic or the Copper Age. Right. Okay, so her area is actually earlier. It's the Mesolithic. So uh, we'll, we'll go through this. Uh, don't know if it's going to particularly help the person, that person, but there will be a ton of resources in the show notes. And in general, I hope this will like act as a sort of springboard. Sure. Okay. So, uh, so, but yeah, basically I had this interview with, uh, with uh, this friend of mine uh, and we talked and then I'm going to try and convey this information to you and in doing so convey it also to the listeners. Yeah. Sure. Now, uh, before we, before we start, I, I'm going to need to uh, like set out the rules of engagement here. This friend of mine is a serious academic. So okay. not, not just like me, someone who has a bit of free time and likes talking about astrophysics and like being all speculative and stuff. This is a person who has like, an academic integrity that I wish to protect. As such, I want to keep this person nameless. Like I keep this, I want to keep this person anonymous. But I want to just credit, take the take a second to just credit uh, this person, saying thank you so much for taking the time out of your like busy schedule to come talk to me about these things. And her her knowledge was just it was amazing listening listening to her talk. Like the way she could ad lib. Um, without any sort of like um, preparation, she could talk at length about these topics, and um, I'm very grateful and very privileged to be in a position to talk to people like that. Great, well, thanks very much. Yeah, just I just want to put it out there though. So full credit goes to this person, but uh, just anonymous credit. Oh, and also, I'm acting as the conduit now to, uh, from which this information will pass. 
So there is a high probability that I may say things that are not entirely accurate because I don't know anything about this time period, okay? I have extensive notes in front of me and I'll do my absolute best to convey things correctly, but there is a chance that things I mightn't convey them 100% uh, correctly. If in the case that that happens, this is a fault on my part, not on my friend's part. Yeah, any yeah. errors are your fault for being an idiot. Yeah. Your fault for being bad at their job. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, and yeah. I'm sh- I'm sure she'll be she'll be in touch. And if there's anything that needs correcting, uh, urgent correcting, we'll drop it in follow up from uh, in the in the next episode. Mm-hmm. All right. Okay. So um, uh, let, let, I'm just going to start talking, Bill, and then sure interrupt me with some questions, and uh, uh, and we'll see how we proceed. Yeah. Okay. I have one question before we begin. Okay. Go for it. So they're asking about, uh, Sammy is asking about the Late Stone Age and the Copper Age. Yes. Um, what makes a Late Stone Age? What, what separates the Neolithic from the Mesolithic and the Paleolithic? Okay, so uh, my understanding based on uh, the, the interview I had was that the Mesolithic is predominantly like hunter-gatherers and the Neolithic is where you see the rise of agriculture. Okay. So I think that's a, b- a big divide. And then obviously the Copper Age, but I'm assuming, is where people start to begin to work copper. You know, and then you, know, and then you progress on. So that's the main th- thing. So th- this conversation will be predominantly surrounded around hunter-gathering type societies. Okay. Does that make sense? Sure. Okay. So uh, in particular, the area of expertise this, this person has is uh, the Mesolithic in Northwest Europe and in particular Ireland. Okay. And the dates for this would be about uh, 7,800 BC until maybe 4,500 to about 4,000 BC. So that's the time period in which most of this discussion took place. Mm -hmm. Of course, um, these aren't specific dates. It's not like you can say with absolute accuracy that this is the point at which the, the Stone Age ended and the Copper Age began. And it varies from region to region. Like some places had some technologies before others, right? And like... I mean, there are still people who are living Stone Age lifestyles. Exactly, exactly. I took this date range as being the range of her expertise. Yeah, with, with yeah her expertise with regard to Northwest Europe. Exactly, and then uh, like she, she mentioned the point that like the further east you go, the quicker things get invented. Like agriculture starts up in the east first and then spreads. So it's mm-hmm. not like but at in this time period like there's a homogeneity across the planet. That's not the case. Obviously, there's various different cultures will adapt at different rates. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's also the point we make because we're going to be talking about hunter gatherers that no two hunter gatherers are the same. You know, because we I think yeah. we, we have a problem that we paint, or at least I had this problem, and it was abundantly clear in the interview that I had this one idea of what a hunter gatherer is, and that applied to everyone always, and that's wrong. Just like there's no such thing as two agrarian people being the same. Like the difference between a rural farmer and say a mass production farmer is huge. Mm-hmm. And the same thing applies for hunter-gatherers. There's going to be a huge difference between different groups of hunter-gatherers. Yeah. Okay. So I suppose to start off, let's just give an overview. We're talking, we're looking at Ireland in the Mesolithic between 7,800 BC and about 4,500 BC. We're looking at uh, hunter-gatherers I- I- inhabiting the con- the co- well the country that is now Ireland, and we're looking at a population level of uh, somewhere in the hundreds or thousands. 
Okay, and I thought that was quite wow. interesting. Yeah, just interesting to get the amount of people that would have inhabited the land. Obviously, these numbers are a little bit vague. You can't get an exact population, but that's the kind of estimates, hundreds or thousands. And it would have worked that there would have been several groups sharing the entirety of Ireland as their territory. Okay. All right, and like a, a group, it could be like a family group, two to three families, and that would be one group and they would roam around Ireland. Hmm. Or at least that's one model. So we have, you have the model I thought was the only model, which is you have the wandering hunter-gatherer. Yeah. So you have hunter, you have uh, groups going about on like seasonal routes about the country, visiting various areas and subsisting. Okay. But there's also, I think, a more fascinating one that, that was brought up in this interview. Uh, and you have the idea of the settled hunter-gatherer. Which I think is very, and it's something that I didn't even think of. Um, the fact that you can have hunter-gatherers in one location with short-term permanence, we'll say. Like generational permanence. And they could live there. And it's it, the more I talk to, uh, to my friend, the more I realize that this model of subsistence isn't correct. That hunter-gatherers could lead very kind of like um, lavish lifestyles in a way. Um, I remember hearing from someone before, I remember I read it in a book or something, mm. that uh, it's thought that hunter-gatherers would actually have had a lot of free time. This this came up in the interview, and I'll probably talk about it at a further point. Yeah, there's, they, if, if they were settled, like if they had a settlement, say, and they were settled next to like a uh, river, mm. that had like abundant supply of salmon, like it's easy to harvest that food. Um, you don't need to like worry about where your next meal is coming from. It's like literally just at the river bend. So they could harvest like quite bountiful amounts and then as such have tons of free time to do other things. Yeah. So this model of like hunter-gatherers being like quasi-starving, roaming around the land, trying to find like berries and uh, bits of like dead animal or whatever is just, uh, that, and that's what I thought it was, is wrong, basically. Or at least it's not necessarily true. And it's not, it's not true for, for Ireland in 7,500 BC. Exactly. And again, all of this is going to come with the caveat that one, I don't know what I'm talking about. And two, it varies completely uh, depending on, on where yeah. you are. She did make the point that Ireland is particularly boring during this period. <laughs> <laughs> she was like, if you, want, if you want really interesting stuff, go look at like the continent. The continent's very, very interesting. And Ireland is a bit like, meh. <laughs> But anyhow, as such is life, and we cracked on anyways. Uh, so uh, again, just to uh, just to overview, we have these groups inhabiting the Ireland of Ireland. Now, a group, uh, what I found really interesting, it could be a group could be bound by blood, so family mm-hmm. groups. But you could also have groups like bound by the same seasonal routes they take, which I think is, which I think is very easy, uh, very very interesting. Um, yeah. So you have various different groups that aren't like genetically related or whatever coming together on their little routes around Ireland and I think that's a really cool idea. And would you likely then have groups that were bound by bound by the seasonal routes and did not become blood like that that didn't mix with each other. Oh. Like they didn't mix like um familially. They didn't interbreed um, but they stay part of the same kind of root group. No, that didn't come up. So I'm not mm. going to make any sort of facts about it but I I would assume that there would be some level of interbreeding. Yeah. You can, it would be hard to imagine that that doesn't happen if they come in contact long enough, you know? Yeah. Well, that seems to kind of strange that we could say then that they aren't bound by blood because after a while they would be. It could be like, say, again, this is me speculating, this did not come up. Say you have, uh, 
you find a site in the north of the country, say, right? Mm-hmm. And you find certain implements there that can only be made there, okay? Mm-hmm. Like axes or whatever, can only be used from the natural resources there. And then you have another group down south that have their own individual stamp or something. And then you, I'm assuming you could find a site somewhere in the middle of Ireland, say, where they came into contact when you have an intermingling of both sort of sets of artifacts. So you know that these people didn't grow up in the same locality, but they came together. Do you know what I mean? Okay. That, and again, this is my speculation. I really don't know. Uh, if if my friend wants to leave a comment, that would be much, much appreciated. <laughs> <laughs> um, of course, the thing about artifacts, though, is that even in the Stone Age, again, from a historian friend of mine, a conversation a few years ago, even in the Stone Age, you had trade routes all across Europe. Like, you can find, uh, like, flints that were carved or napped or whatever in, or maybe maybe it was metalware made in southern Italy, turns up in Cornwall. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. I mean, like, if we, she spoke, um, my friend spoke about uh, there being one uh, one man, I believe it was a man, who um, they analysed uh, his diet. Mm-hmm. what he would have eaten and in doing so I don't understand the particulars of how it's done but in doing so they were able to establish that he began life on the continent and finished up in England wow so you have this thing and then obviously like people came to Ireland uh, I believe uh, on boats so I mean like there was that level of uh, you know travelling as well um, yeah so, so yeah it's and I suppose this is a good point to say that if you're writing uh, like Stone Age fiction it's it's not as kind of colloquial as I think I thought it was I mean, like it's it's it can be more interconnected, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, I w- I would like to focus uh, primarily on this idea of the settled uh, hunter gatherer. Sure. Okay. Because I just think the, the thought I had in my head the entire way through the interview was you could very easily reimagine, like, say, Hobbiton as a Stone Age settlement. Really. Yeah, yeah, we'll go through it, but uh, so that's why I think it's very interesting. So if we think, if we frame this discussion as sort of, let's try and reimagine uh, Hobbiton and the Shire and things as it would have been had Lord of the Rings been set in Stone Age times and not pseudo-medievalism. Okay. Yeah, so um, so let's talk about, the, the you know, the obvious thing if you watch the Lord of the Rings videos uh, or Lord of the Rings movies is you have this wonderful little, little, little town. Yeah. So... The settlement in in Ireland uh, at this period um, would have been wouldn't have been like town like obviously um, it would have been maybe one building in a clearing. Okay. Okay. So you're not looking at towns and things like that. You're looking at like a, a handful of buildings, and these buildings would have been conical in structure. Okay. What were they made from? Uh, so they were made from like uh, wooden poles. Mm-hmm. shoved into the ground and like bound together by uh, a rope material so it could have been like a rope made out of bark or plant fibers or something like that mm-hmm. and then they could have been attached they could have been uh, draped in skins or covered in turf sods um that sort of thing so you you, you can actually get this idea of like a quasi like teepee shaped hobbit hole which I think was really cool. It was a really neat That's idea. Cool. Yeah, it's a very cool idea. And these these houses, again, but TP is the wrong word. Uh, I did a bit of Google searching and stuff. These houses are quite large. They can be quite big. They reconstructed one, uh, according to to my friend in uh, UCD, the University University College Dublin, and they were they managed to be able to fit about forty school children in it. Okay. So it's quite large structures, and you can imagine with furnishing could fit maybe two to three families in there. Three, probably max. 
Mm-hmm. You know, so it's not like a little tent. Like there's quite, quite, quite a significant structure, and then. So you'd have that one central structure in like a clearing and then like radiating out from that, they may have used the surroundings to inform their settlement. So mm-hmm. you might have like, there might be an area that is particularly dry or something and they might make like a little covered food area there. Yeah. And they could have like racks for drying and smoking fish or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and they could a have like... A charcuterie. A what? A little charcuterie. What's a charcuterie? It's a business that smokes meat. Oh, really? Oh, that's really, yeah. that's really, it's a really cute little thing. Yeah. Um, and you can have like a little fishing station on like, say if you're, uh, like we mentioned, uh, situated on a very affluent river bend. You have a little fishing station there. You could have a little hunting station somewhere else. So the impression I got that, the, that their settlements, if they became settled, would be very of the land. And they would, they, rather than this modern idea of dominating the land, the land would inform how they build. Yeah, which I thought sure. was great, and immediately when when she began telling me these things, like it, it that's such a vibrant sort of uh, settlement, you know. Like again, think of Hobbiton, think of like Bilbo Baggins's thing as being a conical a conical structure, and then outside he has his his you know he dries his fish outside, and he has a little like he can have a smoking chamber or something, and so it's not this idea of like kind of cavemen in leotards roaming around, you know, being savages, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very, very sophisticated, and I think that's the point. Of that point I got the most is that if you write some Stone Age fiction, like be be sophisticated about it because these are not. It, it's easy for modern humans to think back and say everyone before us was stupid and couldn't do things, and but but that's not the case. These people were very sophisticated, and you and I think if you're going to write fiction, be sophisticated in your treatment of them. Yeah, no, de- definitely, definitely. I mean, they they were still humans with a full measure of human dignity exactly exactly and it's and it's so easy to just go down the sort of ignorant caveman route and that's something yeah. that i really want to just uh, say that you shouldn't do because one it's immoral and two it just like really um lazy you, and boring yeah it makes your fiction really bland yeah, yeah. exactly and um I, I said the full measure of human dignity you might you might kind of think that they weren't and you might think that uh that you know, modern people are also savages, but at least be consistent. <laughs> like you know, I'm sure they weren't any more cruel back then than we are now. Yeah, the only thing I suppose they didn't have, they just didn't have like the wealth of resources we have left to them by previous generations. Mm-hmm. You know, like we we have like you know the works of the Greek philosophers. We have mathematics. This this helps like me as a modern person out tremendously. Like I could never, I could never prove all the stuff that like Pythagoras proved on my own like I need this to be assumed in the culture in order to be in any way smart you know what I mean yeah th- yeah that's 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 fair yeah uh, they, they had a, a very very different knowledge set um, exactly exactly yeah and and um, it's very interesting when you think about that though as well like just imagine if you had to in your daily life prove from first principles a lot of the things you do just imagine how difficult that would be. Like we take so much for granted, and um, yeah. that's what's come beforehand. Like the ability to do algebra. You know, like everyone complains about algebra, but like life would be so hard without the ability to do algebra. And now it's just assumed that we can deal. Like the, the like people might hate it, but people like everyone knows that you can deal with a variable. That's that's common knowledge. You know what I mean? Yeah. And then if you don't have that, life is just you know a, a hell of a lot different. Calculus, I think, is even better, but that's just me. Well, that, yeah, but again, but people don't usually use calculus in an everyday setting. 
Yeah. Yeah. That's so good. yeah. So um, I would have calculus definitely like you know, the, the ability to be able to actually for once define motion is good because I think it was that the Greeks the Greeks taught movement was non-existent. It was impo- It was like uh, it was irrelevant. It didn't mean anything. And then when calculus came around, they could like pin it on it. Because whenever they tried to, whenever the Greeks tried to study like movement or like acceleration and things like that, the, all their equations essentially just began dividing by zero. Huh. So they were just like, I can't, uh, I can't. Do you mean like like um kind of Zeno's paradox? No, not not Zeno's paradox. Like uh, if I if you want to get what your speed is at a certain point in time, okay. Right, yeah. you have to oh, yeah, narrow narrow yeah, the sense. narrow the speed down, narrow the time frame in which you're um in which you're thinking down, and then narrow uh, the range of speeds. So essentially, what happens if you want to actually get like instantaneous velocity or something, you have to divide zero by zero. This was a problem for the Greeks, and then calculus came along, and was like, actually, we can do it. Yeah. Anyhow, sorry, we're we're getting we're getting derailed. <laughs> the, and another interesting point that that you brought up, and it's very these really like great subtleties that i that i'm i'm really want to like convey um there's evidence uh, archaeologists have found of a tool working inside a house okay all right now for for a philistine like me that sounds like well duh that's obvious who cares but when with an archaeological eye you could begin to draw conclusions like for example that required light for them to be able to do mm-hmm. so they had to have some sort of notion of how to orientate their houses so like orientating the opening towards the light, but like say away from the prevailing wind, which I thought was very, very, very cool that they have this 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 sort of understanding. And again, an understanding that we probably don't have anymore. Like I don't know what the prevailing wind is here. Um, or they could have had a fire. Or they could have had a yeah. Or they could have had a fire. Yeah. But like again, maybe some some structures of fire is just not very uh, plausible. Yeah. You know, like you might end up smoking out the place. I don't know. But but again, it's just uh, just speaking to the volumes of how clever these people would have been. One, one quick question: You mentioned um, that they could have had like two to three or four families in a in a house. Mm. How big were families? What comprised a family? Oops, what comprised a family? So, uh, if, like again, the example she gave: we look, we do. It's hard to tell and make generalizations, but it could be a, a man and a wife, their two to three kids, perhaps, and then their couple of kids so it could be maybe maybe 20 people maybe okay something something uh, like that man and wife was a meaningful was a meaningful concept biologically it's a meaningful concept but i like i i don't know uh this again this didn't come up in the thing i don't know whether or not there well, was no, m- wife isn't a meaningful concept biologically no i mean like in like the idea of a man and woman getting together to make babies yeah. yeah, yeah, like that, 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 that was a thing. But I don't know if they uh, knew about marriage or if if that was a thing, like mm-hmm. the idea of being bound to another person. I don't know, and I don't know if that's built into like some sort of ritual belief behind it. I don't know. Did they have an understanding understanding of the like the biology behind reproduction? Like, did they have a connection between sex and reproduction? Surely. Why surely? Well, well, why not? Tell me why not. Because some cultures don't. Do they not? Yeah. But how? Oh, as in like they think that uh, the stork brings the baby. Well, not like exactly that, but kind of. Oh, oh, I believe, I believe I read a thing about somewhere in Oceania. 
that the 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 the, the, the indigenous people have this uh, sort of belief. I don't know. I don't know. Again, you see, everything we were talking about comes from the fossil record. Mm-hmm. Very difficult to talk about this from the fossil record. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And a lot of it is inferring work, and I don't want to infer on the part of archaeologists. Yeah. Because <laughs> I don't know what I'm talking about. Yeah, the um, the uh, Trobriand Islands? In, they... in Oceania? Um, somewhere in the Pacific, I think, yeah. Um, okay. Off the coast of New Guinea, rather. Off the coast of New Guinea. All right. Um, and what's their story? Do you know what does it say? Um, an ancestral spirit enters the body and causes conception. How do they... How do they not I mean, like, make... Presumably, like, nowadays, they know. But, I mean, uh, until modern times, that was not that was not uh, a part of their knowledge set. Yeah, that's that, that's an interesting point, actually. That's a very mm-hmm. interesting point. Um, because, I, I guess, because, like, everyone was married at some point, and everyone had babies, so there was no kind of counterexample. Ah, yeah, I was about to ask you, like, how do you not make that connection right? But if it's so... If you have so many positive data sets... Then mm. and no negatives to counteract that. Then yeah, you can easily make that assumption. Um, that's a very valid point. And then I suppose you know there might be times as well where a, a a couple would have sex and a baby wouldn't be produced. Yeah. And then they could be like, well, that, that clearly wasn't the you know this isn't the mechanism for making children. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's a very interesting question. I don't know. I don't know on that basically. Uh, unfortunately, well, like uh, about the family though, uh, which is interesting. The people lived the oldest, uh, the oldest like surviving people from this area about forty to fifty years. Okay, that's pretty old. Which is which is quite old. Again, there is this idea that because of like subsistence, there was like high uh, infanticide, um, that the people didn't live that long, but actually people could live, you know, relatively long lives. Mm-hmm. And there's there's even evidence been found that people cared for their elderly, uh, which again is a thing that if you are if you work under subsistence model that you just don't have time to do that. You need to just continue hunting and trying to yeah. to feed yourself. But there's been like the it makes a lot ca- of sense though. Go on. It makes a lot of sense to care for the elderly. Yeah, because I mean, like the elderly, for example, could be obviously the the powerful ones in the family structure, and they could hold yeah, the ritual. Yeah, and knowledge. they have they have knowledge. Like yeah. if you get to fifty then presumably you know a bit about the local animals and the local plants or like how to make tools. All that exactly. Kind of thing. Like you, you have exactly. decades of accumulated knowledge. Exactly. So it's economically it, sensible to hold on to that. Absolutely. There's the, the great, that's a great, great reason for holding on to them. Um, so yeah, that, and that, that was, that was relatively surprising to me. I didn't realize that that could have been the like upper age bound. And I also thought again, in my ignorance, I thought, Oh yeah, well sure. You know, 90% of the babies wouldn't make it and all old people wouldn't make it. So, Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, anyhow, uh, so this th- we have this idea of the settlement. Uh, now, next thing I was thinking was uh, clothing, right? So we walk into the Hobbit Hall, or the the Stone Age structure now, and there stands Bilbo or his Stone Age counterpart, uh, dressed in in all his uh, all his fineries. And so it's worth thinking about how how would you represent people visually in a work of fiction, right? Okay. And again, I was under the impression we have leotards and just lots of nakedness. This is not entirely the case, right? Um, so because you have an idea that hunter-gatherers could have had free time based on, like, bountiful harvest, there's there's nothing to suggest that they wouldn't, like, sit around, like, say, plaiting hair, you know? Yeah. Making clothes out of salmon skin. Uh, this is something I learned from my friend, that apparently salmon skin is a great material for making clothes. Um, and a very, yeah, very attractive material. She said she 
I believe she said she bought a, a salmon skin item of clothing one time. Hmm. Um, and apparently this is a very nice uh, bit of clothing. So, And they would also like, they could well make natural dyes from the surroundings. Uh, they could be sitting around making beads out of animal teeth, you know, uh, doing some some sort of feather work, you know, adorning themselves with feathers, body painting, all of this sort of stuff. So you're looking at an, uh, what could potentially be an extremely rich and colorful and vibrant society. Yeah. Uh, and again, ignorant people like me don't think this. We think in shades of brown, whereas this could be an explosion of color, an absolute explosion of color. And there's an interesting thing they found. Uh, they found a skeleton one time where the teat had been worn in such a way that the only explanation is that it was it had been ground from the cheek side. Okay. And this, and then they they concluded that this must be cheek piercings. Cool. So body modification even could be a thing, you know, even as far back as that. Uh, tattoos, not a thing. Uh, not a thing. Not a thing. Uh, well, uh, we, we might find some some something in the in in the ensuing years that tells us it is. But in this era, not because I uh, my friend told me there that the earliest example of tattoos on a person is three thousand BC, and this is from Otzi the Iceman or Utzi the yeah. Iceman. Yeah. So he's a little bit later. Okay. Yeah. So maybe you're looking at just body painting as opposed to tattoos. But again, yeah. it it it's it's fiction. I mean, like it's not like. You know, people will be running for their flaming torches and pitchforks if you put tattoos on your Stone Age hunter-gatherers. <laughs> you know? And, and then a very interesting point she pointed out about uh, just their just their aesthetic overall is that if you look at the Paleolithic and the cave paintings, mm-hmm. and look, they are beautiful, right? Like, beautiful works of art. And we acknowledge that as being beautiful works of art, but then somewhere in the collective consciousness, we have this discontinuity where we think that when it gets into hunter-gatherer times, it's like, oh, well, then they just all became really bland and all shades of brown. Um, but there's no reason to suggest that that sort of level of, like, artistic and design integrity were to be, like, could not be carried on throughout the ages, you know? Well, the cave painters would have been hunter-gatherers, wouldn't they? Yeah, but, uh, yes, yes, but they are uh, the previous, I believe, I, my chronology could be wrong, they are the previous era. It's called the Paleolithic. It comes before, the Paleolithic comes before the Mesolithic. Right. Um, just, again, I, I don't really know the distinction between all of these things because I'm not an archaeologist, but the impression I got that they were before that. Okay. Um, and then, what else? Uh, in terms of clothing, any trippy... Oh, yeah, yeah, uh, There is evidence of a headdress being found in England. So, uh, what they had done was they had taken a deer skull and put holes in the back of the deer skull and removed the antlers. And uh, they could have potentially, like, put skins in there and hung it as a sort of, like, headdress. That's metal. That's really metal. Yeah. Oh, oh, actually, a pin on metal. There's a really metal thing you need to know about in a second. <laughs> they um. So this could have been like a hunting disguise, uh, or like say a headgear for a shaman. So again, like I just want to paint this image of a really wonderfully vibrant culture, and that I think this should be conveyed in any works of fiction. Mm-hmm. You know. Any questions on that? No, I don't think of any questions. Um. So the the first there is human dignity and visually <laughs> vibrant. Definitely, definitely. And oh, also, mm. consider surroundings. I want to, can I just speculate a little bit on, on, on things? I'm not going to be able to stop you. You're not. Uh, so, <laughs> obviously, this is real world archaeology, right? But remember that you you can have a Stone Age people and using non-Stone Age materials, depending on how you set up your world. 
Okay, this did not come from my archaeologist friend. Please, no one ever quote her on this. Okay, say that again. Say what again? All of that. Oh, <laughs> so you could have you could you could set up a hunter gatherer society like based on Earth in the, in the Mesolithic. Yeah. Um, but they could use like non Stone Age things given their surroundings and how you can do that by how you set up the world. Now, I will give you an example, right? Okay. Uh, Stephen L. Gillette in his World Building, a Writer's Guide to Constructing uh, Life-Supporting Planets and Star Systems proposes a scenario whereby the Earth's atmosphere becomes chlorinated. Okay. So you have chlorine and oxygen, oxygen being the predominant elements in, in the atmosphere. That would be bad. That well, no, well, it would be bad for current Earth, but it actually works out really cool. And there's various different ways in which, like, uh, intelligent life could still evolve uh, differently, but they still evolve. But a big, big sort of thing is that, like, trees, for example, they wouldn't be made of bark; they'd be made of like, um, what's what's the chemical compound? Uh, PVC. <laughs> Yeah, but depending on how uh, the chlorine reacts with various organic compounds, he goes through the chemistry in detail in the book. You should pick it up, guys. It's a good book. You can have PVC trees. So you could have, like, a Stone Age settlement, except that, like, the wooden poles bolstering up the up the settlement is, like, are made of plastic. Weird. Yeah, so I just want to make this this point, like, you can still mess with things in a, in a really strange way. Obviously, there's I huge- demand that Earth immediately liberates this planet. <laughs> <laughs> we all just been chlorinating the uh, the the atmosphere, and he comes up in the book. He comes up with a really neat way of doing it. Like he breaks it down that if there was some organism that used like chlorine as a sort of combustion thing for you know they that's how they convert their food, and then if their population grew, they would slowly like very slowly over time fill the atmosphere with certain levels of chlorine, and it's all very well thought out and all makes perfect sense. And I just want to point that out there because you can't have a good podcast without discussing trees made of plastic. <laughs> okay, so um, I want to ask you a question at this point, Bill. Go for it. Is any of this surprising to you? No. No, why not? That, why, what, is this something you always knew? Like, again, did you, were you, did you not have this idea of, um, you know, the leotard and the... Uh, Naked, naked, naked group running through the wild after some rabbit. I mean, I always kind of figured that would be the, the, the case at some point. Um, okay. I'm sure, I'm sure that there is a, a point in history where that is still true. But, I mean, they're, they're, no, they're humans. Like, they, why, why would they be just, like, naked savages in a puddle? Yeah, you see, I think you're just a better person than I am. Because I, that's what, that's what I yeah. always thought. <laughs> I got. I can't express how much I dislike you. <laughs> <laughs> you love me. You think I'm great. Uh, okay, so um, let's do a crack on to another thing. How about we talk? So we have settlements, clothing, with a little bit of thing on the family. Well, let's talk tools and weapons. Before we go on about the about the family, do we know anything about like how they constructed gender? Okay, so first thing to say on this is that uh, history, prehistory. Uh, was written by privileged white males. Yeah. Right. So the problem yeah. is there's an. That's aw- what we do. That's yeah. There's an awful lot of uh, there's an awful lack of like diversity and discussion about like 
gender roles and things like that uh, mm-hmm. in prehistory. And there's a movement, I'm told at the moment, where people are beginning to relook at the evidence with like the eyes of an enlightened 21st century culture. In, not in Ireland, but in, um, oh, I can't remember the exact place. In some place other than Ireland, I can't remember. Uh, there has been evidence of male bodies being buried with what could be considered female items. Okay. And, vi- and vice versa. So you, you do have this sort of idea that it's not what we think as like the man's role in society and the woman. It's not like the man will be buried with a spear and the woman will be bur- buried with a pot. There is evidence to suggest that they were that there was more nuance to to gender going on. Mm-hmm. Um, there's in terms of like gender roles, like gender working roles. There's no evidence to suggest anything really, because the only way you can get at this is through skeletal analysis. Yeah. So you can analyze the skeletons and to s- test to see where the stresses are in their bones. Um. So for example, like if you were to find like say I don't know a a female skeleton that had like tennis elbow, one could infer then that 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 woman spent an awful lot of time like paddling. So it could have been like the fisher. So it could have been the the provider for the family. We don't. Mm. Basically, the impression I got is that we don't have the evidence to be able to actually make any sort of conclusive statement about them. You know? Okay. But 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 this and this is the interesting thing. There's so much of prehistory that we don't know of because you I mean like we're we're only going on what we can dig up, and so much is obviously naturally going to be lost. Very often, it's worth looking at current hunter gatherer societies and using that as an inspiration for your writing. Yeah. And in current hunter gatherers, you have so much variety. Like for example, you have um some some groups the men only hunt. They that's the the male role is hunting. In some groups, both the men and women hunt. There's an equal thing going on there. And in other groups, like the entire family, including the kids, hunt. Mm-hmm. So there's a huge diversity in terms of how gender works in the like in the workplace, so to speak, on, on Earth currently. And there's nothing to say that that wouldn't be the case in previous society. Mm-hmm. Um, how much do we know about how gender is constructed in current hunter-gatherer societies? Like, do, do, can, we really, can we say for sure that it... it observes a binary and that it kind of follows what we in the West have as the sort of biological distinction. Oh, now, that I don't know. Mm. Oh, because I didn't focus on, we we, we paid, uh, we tried very hard to not focus on current uh, hunter-gatherer societies. We won't talk about the past. I don't know. That's a question yeah. I will put towards my friend because that's a very good question. Because, yeah, that, that, is, that is something that, like, I mean, we're saying that men and women hunt in some societies, but, uh, like, is... Are are we using the same definitions? Is the question I have there? Yeah, that's I. I honestly, I can't. That mm. did not come up, and that is something I will. I will talk to her about. That sounds really cool. But just continuing on this thing, because to go through what I've talked about mm-hmm. in Inuit society, you have this idea of the man hunts. Okay, so performing what would have classically have seen as being a masculine role, right? Mm-hmm. But he does it in a very un like not unmasculine, uh, very a, a way that is contrary. To the to to what people in the nineteenth century taught a man's role would be right, mm-hmm. so he he hunts for food, not like as the provider, but almost to appease his partner. <laughs> okay. So so if he doesn't come back from the hunt with a bountiful supply of food, she will uh, she has the right in society to leave him, for someone else that could provide better. Okay. So in that sort of structure, while it might be seen that the man hunting has all the power, the power actually lies with the woman. 
Yeah. And she has control of, like, if times are scarce, she has control over the food rationing. So she has almost, it sounds like she has almost total control over things. Even though, on the surface, it looks like it's a standard setup of, kind of, gender roles. I want, I'm just going to quote my friend here, um... Uh, because it was a really nice sentiment. She was like, don't let the failings of 20th century archaeology affect the types of diversity that people show in their fiction. Yeah. I think that's a very, very, very neat way of of, of summing it up. I think that's a very good way. There is, uh, let me see, what else is there? Uh... Oh, and while we're on the subject of of, uh, men and women, there's there's also a question, this is kind of touching back on the marriage thing. There's also a question about the, the the less interesting question is was there marriage the more interesting question is how did marriage work and whether marriage was like exogamy or endogamy so was it in marrying or out marrying okay so can you break those down for me right so uh, exogamy is where if i if like i traveled to my next town and married someone in the next town that's exog- yeah. exogamy. And endogamy is... Someone from outside the parish. Someone from outside the parish. I'm not sure if the non-Irish listeners will get that, but that's hilarious. Well done, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, someone from outside the parish. And endogamy would be marrying someone within the parish. Right. Okay? And so there's evidence. This is a really cool little story. Uh, in Japan, in Hokkaido, I believe is the northern island. Yeah, the, the northernmost island. Yeah. The northernmost island, yeah. So... Uh, you had a situation there, at a, I, don't, I don't know exactly what time period this is at, but you had a situation where you had two distinct groups living there. You had a hunter-gatherer group inhabiting the coast, mm-hmm. and you had a, an agrarian culture inhabiting the, like, the inside, the interior of the country. Yeah. Right? And now, the, hunt, the coastal hunter-gatherer group had diets that you know were marine diets, like they ate a lot of fish and whale and that sort of thing. And the the internal group had a lot of terrestrial diets, so the usual things we assume with land-based food. And through being able to track what people ate, you can this shows up in like analysis of of uh, things you uncover. You can see where they move to. Okay. So like you can uh, you can have like a person that has a signature of a marine diet be buried with a person who has a signature uh, it, it, within the group of people who all have signatures of a terrestrial diet. Right, and so you have you have this evidence. You found there's two cemeteries in Japan, uh, where there was two women's whose diets were of the interior group, okay, but but they were buried culturally as the coastal group. Huh. So you have this so that's idea evidence of exogamy. That's evidence of marrying out. So then again, this further speaks to the idea of there's a greater connection that I think myself and other people give to give to things. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. That does make sense. That's interesting. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad. I'm glad. Uh, okay. So, right. And, oh, by the way, Bill, feel free to stop me whenever you think we're done. Okay? Yeah. But we got to... Uh, can we talk tools uh, now? Yeah. Because tools is going to quickly lead on to warfare. And warfare mm-hmm. is going to quickly lead on to probably the m- most metal thing I have to tell you today. Cool. So I figured you'd be interested in this one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, obviously, I think everyone has an idea of what sort of tools would be used. Basically what you can make of stone and wood and binding the two together. Again, I thought this was, like, just going to be axes, really. Yeah. Turns out, like, it turns out they have an entire, they had an entire inventory of a wonderful collection of tools. Um, and some of them not entirely obvious. So I'll just go through a list here. Adzes and mattocks and shovels and... You are, you are, you, sir, are a very intelligent human being. Do you know that? 
Because, well, like, I I had mind blow when uh, my friend told me about ads. Like, complete mind blow. And you just rattle off like it's nothing. Like, oh. I, ne- I nearly I nearly got um nearly got hit with an ads once. Did you? Yeah. Huh. I get hit by an ads regularly. Hmm. What? It's Scrabble. Oh, right. <laughs> one of one of my favourite words. Although, um, people who play Scrabble, can someone let me know? I, I suppose I could just check this in a dictionary, but does anyone want to let me know? Is ADZ the same as ADZE? Because they're both ads. And I but, wonder but if... Scrabble, you're, you're always saying Scrabble has nothing to do with knowing what the words mean, Edgar, so it's not really... A... Oh, yeah, no, well, this is why I'm not really bothered looking it up, because I don't really care what they mean. But it's just, I just in, in this case, I'm wondering, has Scrabble completely bastardized the word ads just by doing ADZ because it's meant to be spelled with an E. Um, but anyhow, that's an aside. Right, the list, right? So we have axes, okay? Mm-hmm. Obviously of all varying shapes and sizes. Uh, we have knives, adzes, we have various scrapers, uh, we have little scoops for uh, removing limpets, uh, we have a bow and arrow, which is always cool. Okay, uh, so they, they did have those in, by the Mesolithic. Yes, they had bone hours, yeah. Uh, they had atlatls. Um, oh. See, I bet you you'll notice as well. You're so intelligent. It's ridiculous. Bear, bear with me. An atlatl, is that like a spear thrower? That is, that's exactly what it is. It's a spear yeah. thrower. Yeah, exactly. And oh, then, obviously, uh, by uh, by comparison, they must also have spears. Um, yeah. So Slings. Uh, slings would definitely be a thing. We didn't talk about them, but they would definitely be a thing. And there's so many that so many things you could do. Now, the interesting ones, right? The interesting ones, I think, are a saw. Okay. Now, that's very interesting I found. So they found evidence of where they had put various bits of stone in, set into a bit of wood. Um, so it wasn't just like the one bit of stone and the one bit of wood, and that was your thing. They had composite tools. Yeah. So I think that's fascinating, a saw. And then also there's evidence of what can be perceived as a grater. Oh. Yeah. So they could have like sat around grating roots or whatever to cook, which I think is great. And again, delicious. it's all just bit delicious. <laughs> again, it's all just like little bits of flint or stone or whatever material it is in in some wood, and then whichever whatever configuration you come up with there, you know. Can I raise one of my very very favorite weapons here? <laughs> yeah, go for it. Um, no, I I'm not gonna say that. I'm definitely gonna pronounce this correctly, but it's uh, pre-Columbian. Uh, American weapon, uh, okay. kind of Mesoamerican and Mexican weapon called the Macuitl. Oh which God! Okay, is a wooden sword with obsidian blades embedded <laughs> down either side. So it's like it's like a, a two-handed, huge, like um, I guess something something like a cricket bat, maybe except larger. <laughs> right. And then down the edges, there are like obsidian knives inserted in it. Wow. Yeah. And apparently they could, like, decapitate a horse with a single blow and stuff. No way. Yeah. That, sir. That, that, is, that is awesome. <laughs> isn't, isn't that, like, super cool? <laughs> that is really cool. That is proper cool. Um, somewhat of an uneducated uh, question here. Obsidian, right? Mm-hmm. Real, what is real-life obsidian compared to, like, the obsidian of Skyrim? I can't remember what it is in Skyrim. It's like metal, isn't it? It's what, like, orcish weapons and armor? Yeah, from? yeah, but it, well, it's used as metal, but I believe it's, um like, uh, volcanic glass. Yeah, it's, it's actually a kind of glass, yeah. Oh, yeah, all right, so it's used correctly. So okay. it's, like, super sharp, but quite brittle. 
Okay, oh, does that mean that you needed to have a whole load of these weapons? Because after one horse decapitating session, you'd be like, well, that's my metal, that's my weapon gone. No, you can just replace the blades. Oh, yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. yeah. And course, maybe, yeah. like, they used small enough bits and the way they were embedded made them, like, less likely to break. Or they used kind of, like, broad... Because I've seen the word prismatic used to describe them, so they might have been quite broad, but narrowing to a sharp point. Okay, cool. We must get a picture of this from the show notes. Yeah, uh, no, they're, they're very, very badass. <laughs> I, I will say, though, there's no swords uh, in, in Mesolithic times. No. Like, in, in Ireland. Like, we're, we're looking yeah. at... Uh, uh, blunt blunt weapons, like bashy things. And piercy things. And small savvy things. <laughs> or slashy things. But we're not talking we're not talking swords. Yeah. Um and, and things like that. So that's important. The swords really need to be metal. Really. The, uh, yeah, really. I mean like a wooden sword isn't really gonna do a whole shebang. No. Well without the obsidian. Obsidian yeah. helps. You know? I mean you can still batter a lad with them, but you're not gonna like Yeah, but you may as well use your axe to do that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, exactly. there's no point inventing a whole new thing, you know. The what's very interesting as well is um the idea that you'd have a whole host of unnamed tools as well. So, like, you know when we work metal, throughout the whole process nothing useful happens. It's all a means to an end. So you work metal until you get to the end and it cools down and you do all that and then you have a sword and then that's useful. But when you work stone, all the bits you chip off, they they in and of themselves can be tools. Yes. So you have this sort of like the actual tool making process produces various other tools. And this is an interesting thing because I, I think, especially us of, those of us who like fiction, we are very much bound by this idea. You have the axe, the sword, uh, the dagger... Whereas they would have had a more kind of like um, fluid sense of what a tool is. Yeah. And I think that I think that is very interesting. I, that, that was a thing I found particularly interesting. There was a class of tool and then everything within that was kind of its own thing. And they would, they would evaluate individual items on their qualities. Would that be kind of a way of looking at it? Exactly. Uh, my friend had a wonderful way of describing it. Uh, expedient tools. Oh. Which I think is just uh, sums it up very well. Kind of like off the cuff tools. I think it's great. Okay. Now, what's the other thing? Oh, yeah, and, uh, while we're talking about tools, I suppose this is a quasi-tool. No pots. No pots? No pots. Not in this time period. Interesting. Yeah. that's that's a, And this is something that if you're writing fiction for, you know, for for like uh, archaeologists to read, this would be very jarring for them. <laughs> if you yeah. uh, set, it, set it in Stone Age and everyone has pots. The only way of having pots, I suppose, if you want to be true to life, is to make sure that your hunter-gatherer uh, society is operate somewhere near an agrarian society because we have pots mm. kind of came in with agriculture as well so i'm assuming they have bowls and things um yeah like the shell could have been a good bowl yeah or carved from wood yeah th- yeah absolutely yeah but in terms of cooking though wood w- wooden bowls ain't great um, yeah of course but yeah yeah wooden bowls and then uh and then shells and things like that um yeah they would have those things but no pottery that's that's important and let's face it, pottery is quite boring. No, it isn't. Yeah, remember leaving... Did you do art in school? Uh, only for junior cert. Yeah, so leaving leaving cert art for me was just... It was all I remember is a blur of pottery. That's all I remember. Oops. Oh, you okay? Load, load of table noise. Oh, table um, noise, table noise! <laughs> uh, we have a kiln here at home. Do you have a kiln? Yeah, we're trying, I... That we're trying to fix up. 
I don't. I, I, I have a, an almost inbuilt hatred of pottery. Just, <laughs> I could not care about pottery. Because, again, um, oh, for the non-Irish listeners, uh, the Leaving Cert is like our final year, our graduation year. And we do all our big exams in that year in school, in secondary school. So that year in art, like, all, nearly all the history seemed to be revolved around various different pots from various different times. And then all of our, like, ceramic projects were building pots and I wanted to build something different, but it was like, no, no, you have to make the pot. And then the, the the way of making pots is just dull. It's like watching paint dry. It's, oh, it's just, no, I don't like pots. <laughs> Anyhow, sorry. So uh, that's tools, right? Um, weapons then, okay? Yeah. Obviously, given the low population densities, right? Yeah. We don't really know about what warfare was like, but given the low population densities, there wouldn't really that be that much of a, a need to have like a weapon. You know? Yeah. Like a specific weapon. You Like, if you need to, you turn your axe into a weapon. You know what I mean? Yeah, it, it kills a dude as easily as it kills a tree, like. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, so, again, like, no swords, that sort of thing. The closest thing to weapon, then, would be... The hunting weapons will be their weapons. So, bow and arrows, things like yeah. that. Uh, what's interesting, and a real big problem for writing fiction, is that, like, there, there was... The idea of kind of organized, coordinated military warfare just wouldn't have existed. No. Yeah, and that's a. And I want. I, I'm actually going to ask you about this. Like, I've been thinking about this for the past few days. I have no idea how you could bring because so much of the fiction we consume is centered around war. You know, Star Wars. There's wars in it. Star Trek, even the great pacifist, uh, the big great sort of pacifist TV series has wars in it. Mm-hmm. Lord of the Rings, Game of Thrones, everything is centered around war. So I was wondering, would you, how would you deal with this? This lack of warfare. Not everything requires war. I, I don't think um, a lot of fiction. A lot of fiction doesn't. A lot of genre fiction, though. A lot of genre fiction does, I guess. But I mean, you can still have. I mean, you can still have mysteries, like intrigue. Yeah, you you, you can still have you can still have like epic journeys. Uh, Game of Thrones minus the uh, the war, the civil war. So just the just the politics and the incest. Just the politics and the incest. <laughs> um, there, there was, uh, there is evidence, obviously, of like interpersonal violence. Of course, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so, just because there is no organized warfare, so warfare done on behalf of someone else, doesn't mean that this interpersonal violence couldn't have been like catastrophic. You know, like, two groups could have yeah. met, and then there could have been a whole, uh, like, a massive battle, in a way. So, there's no warfare per se, but you could have something that would maybe resemble, like, warfare, if you get what I'm at, you know? Yes, I think I do. Yeah. But also, the uh, another thing I wanted to spell, uh, this is me talking, not my friend. This idea of pacifism, this drives me nuts. Um, this idea that everyone before us was somehow more peaceful. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think that's the case. Like, I don't think you should paint because I think didn't they do this with the Native Americans? Uh, they painted this idea that they were just very, like, very idyllic and almost like you know, seventy Zen meditation people who sat around and just you know that sort of thing. And and they're humans like everyone else. They have the capability of hating and and you know, coveting their neighbor's goods and they'll go to extreme lengths to do it. So you know, don't paint everyone as being pacifists. Yeah, I see what you mean. Yeah, yeah, agree, disagree. I no, I, I, yeah, I, I don't see any reason that they wouldn't be. You know, as I said, they have the the full measure of human dignity, but I'm sure they also yeah. have the 
the full measure of human avarice and pettiness and yeah exactly yeah uh, yeah, basically just write about humans is, is the is the take home here. <laughs> uh, yeah. So the really the really the really badass thing I was going to tell you um, is there's a site in Sweden mm-hmm. uh, where it was it was a shallow lake bed. Okay. Okay. And um, what people have done is they had stuck skulls with signs of like interpersonal violence, like they were clearly like murdered or whatever. They had stuck skulls on spikes, right? And shoved them into the lake, so the the dead skulls, uh, like uh, so were kind of almost levitating above the water level. Okay. And they would like they reflect on the water, so you have like this lake of skulls sort of thing. And I'm assuming this is probably to show dominance, perhaps, uh, to ward off people that sort of thing. If you imagine just like yeah, like the dark Scandinavian winter, and then this is like this icy blue lake, and then all along it where these skulls on spikes are rising out of the water. It's like, oh. That is very metal. Very metal. Very, very, cool. very metal. So it's be, it's been testament to the fact that people didn't have to be pacifists at all. They just didn't have organized warfare, you know? Yeah, totally. All right, okay, cool. Uh, let me see. What else? What else we got here? Um, I pick a topic there, Bill. Okay, there's two here beside each other. Spiritual belief and drugs. Alright, do you want to talk about spiritual belief and drugs? Which one do you want to do first? Well, I was actually kind of looking at those together. Oh, yeah, yeah they do kind of tie in. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll bounce back yeah. and forth. Because there's a lot of um, people uh, who speculate that early... Well, m- many religions, but, you know, I suppose sort of a lot of pre-Christian religions in Europe and a lot of religions in other places are tied to... I suppose psychoactive experiences that doesn't make sense but you know like a psychedelic yeah use of psychedelics or yeah drug like substances uh, it's thought that the well there's a theory that the Oracle of Delphi uh, may have had something to do with a gas that rose from the the ground below the temple Ooh. that gave gave the Oracle's visions oh yeah, uh, there's a lot that like the the use of. I mean, it, it's still a thing in, in a lot of parts or places around the world, like uh, parts of South America. Ayahuasca is used in yes um, shamanic ceremonies. That's meant to be. Uh, I've seen some documentaries on that. That's meant to be an intense experience. That yeah, yeah. It's it's from that. everything I've read about it. It's it's, it's intense is the word because it's it's um like a very big experience and it happens very quickly. Uh, uh, the impression I get it, it makes um. <laughs> Western drug use seem almost like, you know, cotton wooled. It it seems it's uh, just watching images of of like reporters go over there and and partake in these ceremonies. They look destroyed. Yeah. As human beings, they just look at the end of it. They look, they look like they've like gone, you know, a hundred rounds with McGregor. Yeah. Um, it's just crazy. But yeah, yeah, uh, drugs. Let's let's talk drugs, and then we'll eventually get to uh, uh, sp- uh sp- um, spiritual beliefs. Uh, no evidence of drugs. Okay. Because realistically, the only way of, of getting evidence of drugs is to find, you know, some sort of implement. Yeah. Yeah. Leftover so, roaches. Leftover roaches. <laughs> yes, leftover roaches. Uh, and the earliest evidence for beer uh, was like the Bronze Age, so so later. Mm-hmm. But like, I mean, like, if you're, this is a culture that is obviously like intimately tied to the land, right? And there's no yeah. way they, they could exist without realizing that like if they lick a certain leaf uh you know it has it makes you know uh, the mind do great things or when food rots 
it can it can uh, bring about altered states of consciousness. So the, you, you we have you have to assume that there was a thing like drug use. Yeah, and Has like to be. particularly because um, psilocybin mushrooms grow quite freely in Ireland, I think. Yes, of course. Yes, yeah, and like def- they definitely would have known about these things. There's no way it's it's there's no way you can set up a scenario where they wouldn't know about these things. You know. Yeah. What What's interesting is even if we don't, if we leave out the drug thing. There's very many practices that involve, like, bringing about quasi-psychedelic states through trances. Yeah. So this is the idea of, like, a shaman or whatever. And uh, I didn't notice at all, uh, but it was uh, I was told that uh, common motifs that people see while in trances are things like spirals, concentric circles, zigzag lines, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And that's interesting because that's the patterns we see on rock art. Oh, and so there's a question, and I, I in my notes here, I have a big, bold, size twenty typeface question mark after this. The idea that is rock art uh, psychedelically informed. That's pretty cool. That's very interesting. Uh, I've, again, uh, this is not attested to. This is just speculation. This is you know I don't want to put words in the mouth of the archaeologists. Yeah, but that's that that's very interesting. I like I've I've experienced things like this. You know, every so often you see like uh, something flash up on social media where it's like stare at the image long enough and then look away, and yeah. then the and then the room becomes really wavy. Have you ever had that before? I don't know that specific one, but yeah, optical illusions. Yeah, yeah, optical illusions. They basically, if you stare at them too long, uh, too long, they leave a sort of resident uh, a residue. Well, not a residue. What's the word? A um residual. A re- yeah, they leave a residual kind of thing in your eye, and when you look away, that's still there, and it blurs the room. And and again, yeah, I've 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 experienced those wavy, zigzaggy type things. So that I think that that seems like a totally legit theory, you know. Mm-hmm. But then the question is, who who would be allowed to do this? Like, who would be allowed to to be in trances, and uh, or who would be allowed to you know eat the mushrooms? In a way, yeah. Like, if you have a question, like, do you set up a scenario where everyone can do this, or do you set up a scenario where only the privileged few can do this, like shamans? Yeah. And I think that that's an interesting thing you can play with. Definitely. Oh, and oh yeah, here uh, the, the thing I want to point out: this evidence for uh, shamanism being connected to rock art is uh, inferred from the sand bushmen of sub-Saharan Africa. Oh. Yeah. Apparently they, they, I don't know about this, apparently they show, this is this shows up in their culture. Um, I was warned by my friend about the pitfalls of using current hunter-gatherers to imply what previous hunter-gatherers were like. Okay. So, because then you're using analogy to say what the past is about, and that's yeah. something that you have to watch out for. You have done that, like, at least twice now. <laughs> yeah, I, I, put, I, I put it at the start. I am merely a conduit for the information. <laughs> I The conduit is buckled and broken and bent by my stupidity, and I'm doing my best to get things out correctly, but yeah, there will be things I'll say that will be wrong, and I, I apologize for that. Um, have you ever heard of Terence McKenna? Brother of Ben McKenna? I don't know who that is. I'm making up names. I have no idea. Who is it? Okay, uh, big caveat before I, I go on. I think he's a kind of interesting dude, but I don't. I wouldn't say that I believe anything that he says. He's just... An, it, they're, they're interesting things to think about. Okay. He was... Um, so how to describe him? He was a sort of a counterculture figure from maybe the 70s onwards. Okay. And he was big into uh, psychedelics and very sort of kind of mysticisms and and uh, spiritual beliefs and stuff. Uh, a little bit of the kind of 
like you said, the 70s hippies and meditation guy and ha- took ideas from all over the world and like put his own spin on them. Mm. But he has, he, he's big in, in the promotion of DMT, which is yeah. the active ingredient in ayahuasca. Mm. But he has a, a theory, which is not taken seriously really by anyone in any kind of academic circles, but it's certainly an interesting one for inspiration for world building. Right. The stoned ape theory of human evolution, which is that at some stage, the addition of psychedelics to uh, human uh, diets or you know, that having psychedelic experiences come into the, the kind of the thing that humans or pre-humans encountered yeah. sparked a kind of change in human consciousness. So that they weren't, people weren't really conscious in the way we understand them now until that was unlocked by psychedelics. Oh man, I call utter bull on that. But it's an interesting idea as well. No, it is interesting. Yeah, from a world building standpoint, you can obviously, I mean like, you can watch the History Channel and use it as inspiration for world building, right? But now we're speaking as from a, from a like, is this a legit theory standpoint? But Mm -hmm. there's, there's, but there's no way to falsify that. like and then that seems so informed by someone who is very There's lots of fields that can't really be falsified that are still taken like seriously to some extent. You know? Okay, so that's all right, point one, point one. Fair enough, that might be a flaw point. But the second point is this seems like a a worldview informed by someone who is very much of a certain era. Oh yeah, totally. Yeah, totally. I mean, like, but the, the, you you can't you can't let that happen when trying to come up with theories about the world. Like that's that's the exact you same problem. It can't not happen. No, no, but this is the exact same problem that the, the what's called, uh, privileged white men who wrote prehistory did. Like, they, they, pay, they had ideas that the past was built in their image about what they think. So if the guy is involved in, like, counterculture and big drug taking, you can't go, oh, because I do these things and because I'm into them and I see these things, therefore others before me must have and somehow that's valid. That, that strikes me as just being, like, self-referential. But you, you can't not be influenced by anything. I mean, any any frame of reference, you, you can apply that criticism to it. Oh, yeah. No, no. But you, that, that's that's very true. And In you general, are, you know? Yeah, you will it, obviously be influenced by, by factors, but, like, the... Uh, you say like, it seems like a, speci- a very obvious and injurious example. Yeah, yeah. It seems like like his... I don't know about the guy, but it seems like the, the thing that he defines himself as the most has infor- informed his scientific inquiry. I think... Like, I don't know if I'd say inquiry. <laughs> yeah, I, no, I, I know. I would say it's scientific. But <laughs> yeah, that's what, that's what I mean. This is this is not scientific. Like, this this just seems just stupid-like. It seems ridiculous. Interesting for world building, but that immediately alarm bells are going off my head going, this day, I don't know about this, man. Well, I think the idea is just that psychedelics are, like, really, really, like, a big deal. And, like... In contemporary times, people say that, oh, you know, this is, has had a profound impact on my mind. And he's like, well, I mean, maybe discovering things that had a profound impact on the mind yeah. could have yeah. been influential in how we developed. And like, you yeah. know, it's taken seriously that religion it could, could be tied to, to psychedelic experiences and altered states of consciousness. So it's not much further than that. Yeah. No, that's true. But maybe it's just the point where it's kind of like, we weren't really conscious before, <laughs> and then we ate the mushroom, and then suddenly consciousness. I mean, like it sounds like all various different factors of the world—you know, evolution, 
psychedelic aspects, spiritual aspects, pragmatic aspects, they all inform what it is to be a person. And no mm-hmm. one thing is is overriding any other thing. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That's, that's what I think. And I think he's doing the exact opposite. He's allowing one area he's interested in to override everything else. Anyhow, well, we're getting we're getting sidetracked. Oh, uh, I was going to put this in the green, green room, but I'm going to talk about now just to, while we're on topic of people who you find interesting but don't agree with. Right. Uh, Deepak Chopra. Oh. We mentioned him briefly last last time, and I, just, as it happens, I met up with a friend of mine last week, and we began talking about a fellow called Sam Harris, actually. Yeah. And then as a result, we started talking about Deepak Chopra. And... I decided to look into some of Deepak Chopra's stuff because it's it's very easy to just go, oh, like everyone thinks he's an idiot. Therefore, I should think he's an idiot. Uh, so I decided to look into some of his stuff and analyze some of his rhetoric and just, just figure out what he is trying to do. Like regardless of what other people think of him, just what I think he is trying to do. The man is obviously a, like... I see, I don't know. I think he's a really complicated and interesting individual because he's clearly wrong. Okay? Like, everything he says is clearly wrong. Like, there's no two two ways about it because he uses, like, he uses an awful lot of scientific words that have distinct meanings and those meanings are counter to what he's saying. Yeah. So, like, it's very easily, like, very, like, one 10-minute session on Wikipedia can can uh, disprove most of what he's saying. But the interesting and complex thing about him is, I don't know, a lot of people, and you, you yourself refer to him as this, I don't know if he's actually a charlatan. I think what he thinks that he has discovered something great and mind-blowing, this idea that quantum mechanics co- goes into like the realms of health and things like that. I think he, th- he actually genuinely has looked at it, misinterpreted the evidence, because it's, I can see how it's easy to do so. And then formed a a hypothesis, and it just doesn't have the physics backing to be able to like understand why he's wrong. Really? Yeah. No, I, I think I, it's so beyond coherent that I don't know how anyone could come up with it and think that no, it's real. I don't think it's no. I don't think it's beyond coherent. Like if you if you like you know, and I want to emphasize again for the internet, I think it's rubbish, right? I what he's saying is rub- rubbish, right? But if you break down his speech and analyze the words he's using you can quickly get out why he is trying to use them he's using them in a very kind of like stupid manner and throwing them together but like i i understand what his theory is from studying the words he uses so i think he thinks that he's right I think he doesn't see himself, like, in his heart of hearts, I, when he, like, sits down and is a moment at home on his own, I don't think he looks at himself and goes, you're a, you're a fraud. You know, but you're a very rich fraud, but you're a fraud. I think mm-hmm. he thinks he genuinely has something here. Really? Yeah. And again, mm-hmm. I want to emphasize, he's an idiot frat, right? <laughs> like, his theories are clearly wrong. Like, there's, there is no way of... Like, because you can disprove them. It's not like, like, say, a question of God where you can't prove a negative. You know, prove there is no God. You can't prove that. But you can prove that his theories are wrong without a shadow of doubt. Um, right. But, but he thinks he's right. And I think, I, like, I don't like him. I don't like the way he's in the public domain. I don't think he should, well, freedom of speech and all, but he really should, like, have a conscience about what he's doing. But I think he's a complicated individual. And I think it's, uh, I think writing him off as a charlatan doesn't allow you to actually uh, involve yourself in some actual interesting, engaging investigation. 
Okay. Just I wanted to bring that up because it's been a it's been a Deepak Chopra very heavy week uh, for me, and I've been listening to an awful lot of stuff, you know. <laughs> um. So and oh, also Oprah Winfrey, right? Yeah. She she needs to she 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 needs to take some serious responsibility for that. Like I'm I, I I'm not an Oprah Winfrey fan at the best of times. You're more of an Ellen kind of guy. I love myself some Ellen. <laughs> um, but, she, like, I believe um, from a brief bit of study I did about this that she was a huge contributing factor in his growth in popularity. Yeah. Yeah, like, he came on her show and then she, like, gave him very specials and he has segments and, and that's done huge for him. Like, she as a person working in the public domain, right? And, like, she's gotta be sensitive to these things like it's 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 just i i find her almost worse than deepak because deepak thinks he's onto something she with her almost limited supply of resources should employ a team or something to make absolutely sure that the content that goes on her show is ethical at all times considering her audience base as in her audience base who won't be scientifically informed exactly yeah, yeah right and you can't expect people to go oh there's a guy talking about health that's good. I'm going to spend the next few weeks really going into what he's saying. They're going to go, okay, he is a doctor. Like, he's an actual genuine doctor, not just like, you know, a, like a PhD doctor. He's a, like an MD. So he's like, oh, yeah, he's, yeah. A, he's an, a, prof- an endocrinologist or something. He's, he's an endocrinologist, exactly. So he, so people go, oh, so he's he's a doctor and he's been working in the States at a very high profile, profile uh, hospital. And he has this theory that sounds scientific. So therefore, he must be correct. And, and like, shame on him for not having the, like, ability to be able to reason correctly. But shame on Oprah. Like, shame on Oprah. Like, fact check stuff before you put it up. Hmm. Anyhow, I'm sorry. <laughs> Rant. Okay, uh, back to spiritual beliefs. <laughs> so, uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about, in terms of spiritual beliefs, uh, if I can talk about the Sami people for a second. Of Finland. Of Finland. You know you like your Finland. I do. You do, you do. How is it going since Google took it over? <laughs> I don't know. I haven't been back since. You haven't been back since, okay. <laughs> What's called, so the Sami people, right? Um, They have this idea, again, we're using modern hunter-gatherer societies as analogy here, so you have to be very sensitive and, and watch out. But they have this idea of animism. Yeah. That, that is, for people, that is the idea that things are animate, but not animated. So, like, they have, like, a life force or whatever, but they're not able to, like, get up and walk around. So, mm. like, a, a tree can't walk around the place, but it has, like, a being, that sort of thing. And what's really interesting about this is that, like, for them, hunting isn't the one-sided affair that we think it is. So, for, like, if I were to go hunt, right, I would go get, a like, a gun license, and mm-hmm. I, would, I, would buy, I would buy a gun, and I would go out and shoot a deer, and there'd be no competition. And shouldn't be no competition? I mean, like, the deer doesn't stand a chance. Well, you have to, like, like find it and stalk it and not spook it away. Yeah, uh, okay. It's not right. easy. No, okay, so it's it's there's a small challenge on my part to get close to the deer. But once we're kind of pointing the gun at the deer, the deer doesn't have a chance. I, I don't think it's necessarily a small challenge. Okay. All right, well, in light of what I'm going to say next, maybe relatively it's a quite a small challenge. Okay, yeah, um, yeah, sure. N- not not to say that haunters aren't skilled people. That's not what I'm saying, right? Anyhow. Oh, interesting debate about hunting we should have at some time. That would be an interesting one. Anyhow, but that's pin for another day. So the, for, for, for these people, um, obviously with no guns and things like that, hunting is 
a very kind of even playing field mm-hmm. where, where the human is like on par with the prey. So there's just as much chance of the human dying than the prey dying. Okay. You know, yeah. because of this, I'm, I'm assuming this is my own speculation. Uh, because of this, th- this is maybe where this like animism came from. Like everything is kind of level. Everything's kind of one, if you know what I mean. So uh, the, the hunter sees the prey as being a conscious being. And very often the hunter will ask the prey, look, I need to feed my family. I'm really sorry, but I, I have to take you. Mm-hmm. Right. And what ensues, and this is very interesting, and especially from a literary sense, what ensues is like this mental, physical and spiritual battle that doesn't occur in modern hunting. Right. And, and I think that's and from a narrative point, like you, you can think of a great scene set where you go through the whole gamut of emotions with like the mental, the physical and spiritual in a sort of hunting scene. Yeah. It's kind of like human participation in the the natural world, in the sort of the natural economy, the ecosystem, mm. in a way that is no longer the case. Yeah, exactly. As opposed to like dominating over the ecosystem. So and then there's like so if if the human doesn't return from the hunt, if the, the, the animal takes him and the, the say the group, the at large, see an animal emerge from like i don't know the forest or whatever uh shortly thereafter they they infer that the man or the sorry the person has become the animal his spirit has moved on cool you know which i think is very cool and also very interesting if again from a, a genre fiction standpoint because then it's almost like the idea of werewolves or weirwoods in game of thrones or skin changers like there's loads of bits like like things like that the spiritual beliefs that can almost bring in a sense of magic to a setting but actually still keeping it grounded in quasi real life mm-hmm. which I uh, which I found which I found very fascinating yeah um, I guess from a world building point of view to me as a reader anyway specificity is more interesting than than being general like if you're just gonna say oh they're an animist society and that's that that's doesn't tell you anything but if you like, mm. give me specific beliefs that they have that's cool to read yeah, exactly, and this this is the thing about the uh, the the various like the the gamut of emotion there, like how it plays into everything. Um, mm-hmm. I think definitely very very cool to read. Oh yeah, yeah on the thing you said there, um, I, I so I asked my friend as well, just vibing off what you're going on there uh, about what what she would and would would and wouldn't want to see in fiction mm-hmm. based around this time period. One thing would be like just jarring effects, right? So like. Uh, hunter-gatherer people with pots riding mammoths <laughs> w- would be bad, okay? Yes. So, yes, it would be bad. So th- th- what I kind of got at was a sense that you don't need a, you don't have to be consistent with, say, geography. So you can take various elements from various different groups around the world and combine them into, like, your idea of what you want to present as a hunter-gatherer civilization. But you, but uh, I, I'm with her on this. You, you should be, like, sensitive towards time. Yeah. So geography, what, you what can... What people would actually have access to. Be consistent with what's what's actually available. Um, Let's talk about two topics. I, mean, I don't know if you have anything to say on these, but two topics that we're both very interested in. Yes. Uh, what about language and what about music? Okay, yes, we, ha- we have something on this, which is nice. Short answer is, we don't know. <laughs> to both of those things there's so much of this we don't know which is actually great for writing fiction because you can just make up a lot of stuff 
Yeah. But although uh, it's very hard to know what to what to make up when you're um when you're writing stuff about music. So if only someone handsome <laughs> had written a world building guide about how to write about music, that would be great. If only. If only. If only. I know of some music world building guides out there, but they're all shockingly written. They're all they're all terrible. Like and some of them do this thing where they're like they're quasi instructional and then they have like a narrative built in. It's just it's just a mess. That's what it is, it's a mess. <laughs> um but anyhow, so language, we have no evidence for language. And we've no evidence for a writing system. I mean like no evidence of what the language was. Yes. Like I mean they did have language. They they would have hundred percent would have been able to speak, but we don't know anything about <laughs> what that was. Okay. Um, what what is interesting though, it's um the way in which archaeologists find out about what language they use, which is very fascinating I found, is that there's a bone in your throat called the hyoid bone. Okay. And it's the bone that supports the tongue. So that bone will have certain stresses on it depending on how you use your tongue. Mm-hmm. So they can infer what sort of work the tongue was doing and then also infer what their speech would have been like. Broadly, I'm sure. Yeah, broadly, yeah. But, the, but I think that's fascinating. Like, something as yeah. intangible as language. And I often find this, uh, when this was mentioned to me, I, I, I realized that this is something I experienced the whole time. With my language videos, I'm very f- often forced to uh, try and produce phonemes that don't exist in English. Mm-hmm. And especially of languages like of the Middle East, they use a lot of things where your tongue is shoved right back in your mouth. And I always find it like quasi sore to do. Like I always find a stress deep in my throat. And then I just I thought that was interesting because like, oh, maybe that's, you know, doing that. Maybe it's causing little things on the bone. Who knows? Hmm. So the little we do know about language is like we can infer a little bit like, for example, the cave paintings of the previous period, the Paleolithic, could be seen as narrative. Okay. So they could be maybe a hieroglyphic system. We, we that really don't know. That's me speculating. Um, mm-hmm. Also, rock art could be uh, a writing system. Okay. So, the, I don't know, for, for, again, writing fiction, you could use that as inspiration. Hieroglyphics or uh, what's your geometric forms as writing systems. But that, that's all untested. Uh, and we, we really, we really have no idea. Uh, now, Music. Music. We don't know. <laughs> Good. No, Good. but we, we can make some we can make some assumptions. We haven't found evidence of stringed instruments or drums, right? Of drums. Or drums. Yeah, we just and that, I think it's just the case that we just haven't found them. Not yeah. that they didn't exist, we just haven't showed up. It, again, it's really hard to imagine a culture that has like bits of wood and skins not having drums. You know? And luckily those are biodegradable, so it's perfectly logical that they might not have survived. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So you know, if you're you... hitting a log if you're hitting a big log to make a noise, how does the archaeologist tell that that's not just a tree? Yeah, exactly. Well, test for stresses. Yeah. Yeah. I, and but then like the, the thing was gonna have to be preserved in a certain way, isn't it? Otherwise it's just all gonna go away. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, like, th- we can, I suppose you could safely say that they're going to have things like stringed instruments and drums and the like. It's just that we haven't found any. Uh, the earliest flute uh, is Paleolithic. So mm-hmm. there's no reason to think that they didn't have flutes, say. And then, obviously, there's the voice. Of course, yeah. W- would you say that they probably did have string instruments? I don't want to say anything. But, but I mean, like, why, why would you not have some sort of stringed instrument? Like, what's stopping them, given their tech level? I don't know, it's, it just seems like something that would be kind of more advanced and kind of more difficult to maintain and 
I know it, it's it just seems seems harder to get at. But what about if you're building your settlement and you're using like plant fiber fiber rope? Yeah, and you I suppose you do have gut, which makes yeah you know, horse hair things like that as well. You know, I, mean, I suppose what the important thing to bear in mind is that these aren't like you're not looking at a violin. Yeah, of course you know not. I mean? no, of yeah. course not. So I mean, like I I I, I don't know. I, I really don't know. I have no idea about this topic, but I wouldn't be it wouldn't be jarring for me to have people play string instruments in their in in, mm. in a fiction in a work of fiction you know but that's all we have there's a book uh, I believe it'll be in the show notes but it's a book called The Singing Neanderthals that cool. my fr- friend told me about and I, I, be- I believe because um, this isn't in my notes so I'm just trying to remember what you said I believe it's about things like music and language uh, in prehistory mm-hmm. so that might be quite an interesting one for people to pick up um, and it's worth doing also in terms of uh, studying how music operates in a non-western paradigm I would encourage people to check out the musics of uh, Sub-Saharan Africa because Sub-Saharan Africa is brilliant and in particular the pygmy groups do you remember we had a lecture on this no no oh did you not go to this lecture I don't know okay so when when Bill and I were in college there was a lecture uh, a, a Jewish uh, I believe uh, no no Israeli man I believe an Israeli man gave a lecture about yes I did go to this yes yeah he was horrible uh, yes, he was a very, very, very um, cantankerous elderly man. <laughs> cantankerous. <laughs> I yeah, and uh, I went to that, and mm. part of the reason, obviously, I was like an interesting topic, so I'll go. But he was relevant to my thesis. Oh, yeah. Oh, right. what what did you do your thesis on? Ligeti. Oh, how was he? Oh, yes, yeah, and you talked to him afterwards about something, didn't you? Mm, I can't remember if I did or not, but anyway, he he did some work. I think it was was it on on some anyway specific group that Ligeti later worked with as well, or there, there was some connection that he he and Ligeti were both interested in this, or Ligeti read his his work on some specific group. Uh, Ligeti, for the people who aren't involved in classical music, Ligeti is. Oh, Ligeti is a composer. Yeah, George Ligeti, a Hungarian composer from the twentieth century. He died okay. about ten years ago, and my um my chief bro. He's your chief bro. My my number one music contemporary music dude. Yeah, he's my favorite. favorite L- Liggy's works are very very good. But so this 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 uh, professor came and talked uh, to our college about uh, the musics of uh, various sub-Saharan African groups, and that sort of thing is a very very interesting to explore when it comes to music in in applying it to a hunter-gatherer sort of setting. setting. I'll try and find some links and stick them in the show notes so you check it out. Or read hmm. Bill's... I'm sure Bill will make an article about this sometime. Because <laughs> he talks about things on the podcast and then he, then he gathers all his thoughts into exquisitely executed bits of text that really annoy Edgar and cause him to feel sad. Once so far. Let's, let's not... Well, let's no, not you, well, you, you've had other writings as well. It's not like this is your first attempt at writing something. Well, no, once based on podcasts so far. Oh yes, 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 yes. Um, so yeah, that's 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 basically it for for music and language. There's not much else we can say. A lot of the stuff has to be inferred, right? But it's not hard. And again, study study modern modern groups uh, and see what you can do. I think is the best best job. You know. Mm-hmm. All right. Okay. So it's been ages. <laughs> so so we maybe call it here. Maybe we should call it there. That's going to be a long one. This is going to be a long one. All right. I will... Uh, or for the listeners, this has been a long one. Yes. It might... I might end up cutting all this and it turns out it turns it like it turns into a 15-minute thing. Who knows? <laughs> I doubt it, though. All right. Listen, uh, I will... Oh, I need, I need to talk to you in the green room for a second. So uh, can we go to the green room? Yeah, sure. Let's right. do that. All right. See you there. See you there. 
So uh, I need to I need to ask your advice on things, Bill. Go for it. Uh, we have officially seven minutes before I need to leave and go to work. <laughs> okay. Okay. So for the listeners, this might just cut abruptly mid sentence. All right. <laughs> <laughs> just warning you because we literally are now on a on a on a schedule. So I put out a new video. Okay. All right. It was slammed on Reddit. Okay. Okay. Like it was torn apart. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm not, not, not saying unfairly so. I, I, I looked at uh, all the comments, particularly the ones that criticised, and the strength of each individual argument and the multiplicity of all of the comments suggests to me that I, I was wrong, very wrong. Okay. So I want, I wanted to ask, I want, I just want to ask advice of you and the listeners as to how to proceed here. So I don't like being wrong. No one likes being wrong, but I, don't, I also don't like being wrong in public and having it stay in public for all of eternity, you know? Right. So I'm wondering here, do you think it might be a case that we, that, that we take, we should take this video down and, and re-upload a very similar video, except corrected? Or should it stay up and people can take from it the good parts, which I'm, and to be fair to myself, like 90% of it is, is grand. It's the, there's one central point, like the interesting point in the middle that is actually flawed. What, what, what would your opinions be on this? That's hard to say. Because this is, this is a part of existential crisis month for Edgar. It's just, uh, just, just that was a perfect storm of, of things going wrong <laughs> and it manifested itself in a, uh, in a below par video. In my eyes, the views are still of standard things and the likes are fine and, but in my eyes, I just there was a massive letdown, you know. Is there a way for you to like say within the video that was like, oh, actually this bit is wrong, but the rest of it's fine, like with two annotations? Or yeah, something? you could stick up a big dirty annotation. But yeah, how do you feel about that? That as a solution. Uh, my ego doesn't like it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, like, if I'm perfectly honest, my ego kind of wants no. I want the stuff up there to be correct. Like, yeah. I could stick up an annotation and, like, as a link, and link to, like, say, a private video or an unlisted video that clarifies that section. Um, You could do things like that, but that, again, that just... Annotations bother me. I don't like using them because they look they look unprofessional, first of all. Yeah, I, I hate annotations. Yeah, people like you never turn them on. Um, yeah. So that, that, that leaves a lot of people that, that will never see this. And, and I'm, just, I'm very concerned about this because this idea of... Like, I realize I'm operating in a speculative realm and I'm not doing hard science. But this idea mm-hmm. of propagating absolute nonsense, really, and this is the thing that goes back to Oprah and Deepak Chopra. Like, someone has to take responsibility for it. And I think it might be a case that the, the video just needs to be taken down and re-upload and then just suffer the shame of people going, wait a minute, this is the same video. And then I go, yeah, actually, the last one was extremely wrong. You know? Well, it wasn't extremely wrong. There was one bit that, was, that wasn't quite right. Yes. Now imagine, imagine you're at a wedding, and there's a wonderful, wonderful multi-tiered wedding cake, uh, uh, and there's icing, a beautiful decorative icing on the cake, and the sponge is gorgeous, and the, like the bride and groom cut into it, and it's just, it just looks majestic, and you're salivating, you're like whoa, and then it arrives on your plate, and you take a bite into it, you taste the icing, and you taste the the Victoria sponge, but then the little tiny layer of jam in the middle. a Victoria sponge as a wedding cake? I don't know, man. Fruit cake. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, you bite into the icing or whatever the cake is comprised of, but the little sliver of jam in the middle or whatever it is, is like rotten. 
like you wouldn't turn around and go like, ah, well that that cake was predominantly successful. That was good. I think I'll order that again. Do you know what I mean? I guess it, it's like it's the. I think it's the critical nature of that error. I I linked I linked to the error in in the show notes, so people can go check it out and maybe they can judge what what they think. It's just that like that was the interesting point, and it was actually uh, funny enough. It was the bit where I had to come up with my own way of thinking of it. Everything else was drawn from papers, but then I had to extrapolate, and I extrapolated completely wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yeah. So, uh, in, uh, like, what what do you think? Take down, leave it up. Hope it sounds people- like you are really um, leaning towards taking it down and, and redoing it. Yeah, I'm kind of, I'm kind of wanting you almost in a way to pull me back off the edge. Oh. Like, that's the reason why I'm bringing it up. Well, I don't, now I obviously don't want you to do because I've said it. But I was like, I'll bring it up with Bill. And if he goes, Edgar, that's nonsense. Then I'll be like, oh, okay. Um, like, I, I don't think it's the end of the world. Um, I... No, but you see, but I do think it's the end of the world because you're propagating well, nonsense. Then change it. Then take it down. <laughs> that's, that's a good point. Well, but why don't, why don't you think it's the end of the world? That's the point I'm asking. Like, if it's wrong, and like, if you wrote a piece, wrote, you wrote a piece on your website, right? And the mm. the central argument, the central point in it was just wrong. Okay, like, it's not the central point that is the issue in this video. It's it's a point. No, no, it's the set. Oh, well, I oh, for, sorry for the listeners. This this is the point that I made about uh, lines of longitude and latitude. No, sorry, uh, this is the point I made about lines of latitude and how you can uh, how there's formulae to to show where they are on any given planet. And I made a point that at above a certain angle the latitudes flip and you get this really weird scenario where you have like uh, polar conditions around the equator and equatorial conditions around the uh, the poles, right? And like mm-hmm. that was the center point. I was like, look at the amazingness that can be done with axial tilt. And that was like the bits about like how seasons work are right, obviously. And like, oh, the earth is tilted 23.4 degrees. That's all right. But the bit where I was like, let's take it to the next level. Wrong. Hmm. Yeah. I, I don't know. A, a large part of this I just need someone to talk to because I've been boy. This has been running in my head constantly. I've had a inner monologue going on in my head, going, "That was rubbish, Edgar. That was rubbish." And I just need someone to talk to. Anyway. There you go. Thanks, Bill. It's okay. I, I, I don't. I don't think it, it's it's the end of the world. But if you are really worried about it, I would cancel doing the video again. You would cancel doing the video. Cancel. Oh, cancel doing the video again. Okay, right. Okay. Um. Or what about maybe the option of taking down the video and uh, changing your name <laughs> and fleeing to Argentina there to live out the rest of your days in anonymity? You see, you see, you say this as a jest, but those <laughs> those were things I actually strongly considered. Like, oh, then you know what the worst thing was as well. Like, I'm sure most people don't care. Most people didn't didn't even spot this. But the worst thing was, well, I had an influx of new subscribers. Like, it, it, Artifexia has been booming race, recently. And it's like, now this happens, right? People, what has been? Artifex, Artifexia, uh, I call the land that Artifexia operates in Artifexia. So, I, I, th- there was a blip in the sky, but I thought you said something about Argentina again. <laughs> no. <laughs> I did not. I'm sure Argentina is booming. I have no idea of their uh, socioeconomic status. I don't know. Um, but, um, but, like, there was an influx of subscribers, and I'm like, oh, the newest video they get to watch is one with a critical and it just it just it was a like compounding things built up and it was just not a good time in artifacts yet what does uh, cgp gray do when he makes a mistake he has uh well to my knowledge he has never made one 
So he has a hierarchy of errors, right? Right. So if he makes spelling mistakes, it goes through, it's fine, who cares? A slip, not great, but not the end of the world. If he mispronounces things, again, who cares? But And it go, keeps going down in severity and, and the, the at the bottom of, or at the top of the list of like heinous things to do is when you try and make an argument for something or demonstrate something and you're just, you are fundamentally flawed, right? right. He has never, to my knowledge, he has never encountered that or he hasn't brought a video to release date and then encountered it after release date and then took, taken it down. Right. So I don't really know. But I know that he worries an awful lot about when he makes a point that the central argument just gets destroyed. And I feel like... Uh, particular- Doesn't he have a video where he says that the official name of our country is the Republic of Ireland? <laughs> yeah, he does. He does. But that's not a and, central... Okay. That- Go on. But it's it's not really the central argument, Edgar. I, I don't really don't see the mistake in yours as the central argument of, of your of your video. It's an important argument. It's like an, oh, this is a cool point. But everything like all it's like you, you all the instructions are valid, and you got the one of the outcomes wrong. That's all. Yeah, but you that's can follow not- everything else, and this one outcome that you said is is not quite right. All right. Okay. So you don't, you don't honestly don't, and and do you see it of the level where it should continue to remain in the public domain? Like, is that is that, are you uh, is that something that you'd be okay with? If this was your video and you're like, oh, I made this error, but you know what? It's okay to stay out there. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. It's yeah. I think it's really tricky doing stuff on the internet. It's stressful. It is. Actually, no. Hold on. Sorry, I take that back. There are many jobs in life where one is stressed. Making videos as a hobby is not a stressful thing. <laughs> I just don't want to be like... You could be getting shot at. Yeah, I could be getting shot at. That would be a lot more stressful. Than, you could than... be delivering baby cows. I, I could be. <laughs> that would be more stressful, I'd say. <laughs> it would be slightly more stressful. But there's the, the, the one bit of the video making process that, that is risky is the presenting it to the public and having it open for public uh, thing scrutiny. Yeah. Um, so anyway, yeah, just I just wanted to, to voice it. I think I still am leaning heavily on the take it down. I would like to hear from uh, the subreddit what they think. Uh, yeah, I'd like to hear uh, people's opinions and what they thought of the slips in the video. Did they think they were detrimental or passable? Uh, give me some advice here because this is the first time this has happened and I'm genuinely torn between what is actually the correct thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and that would I would I, like I know I say like you know you know, subscribe and things like that, but things like this actually would be genuinely useful to me uh, trying to be a video creator online. So I would really appreciate any sort of help the the community could give. Yeah, what 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 do you guys think? Because you know you're an important part of the process. Yeah, and also you are not one brain, which is which is great. You are you are like a collective group. And there's much more wisdom to be derived from the from the collective than there is from my wonderfully flawed brain. <laughs> All right, cool. All right, I think this is officially our longest episode ever. What I a suspect, way! I suspect to, it will be. What a way to start off season season one. <laughs> our second season, season one. <laughs> oh God. Okay. All right. Okay. Can I leave you with another BB-8 sound? You I'm can. Gonna, Please fin- do, in fact. I'm, I'm gonna I, w- finish I would enjoy up. that. Oh, great.
Oh, right. No, sorry. You you cut out there again. Oh, man, your voice is really bad. Um, What are you saying about my rich caramel baritone? See, I heard... <laughs> baritone. <laughs> rich caramel baritone. Watch Rich Caramella. No, never mind. Okay. All right. 